And it, whether you like the song or not, I mean, John couldn't dance to Stayin' Alive. And, and it wasn't a dance record, if you think about it. But he, he, he said he, he was comfortable walking to it. <laughs> so we, off you go. <laughs> That's how that iconic scene came about, as he didn't want to dance to it. If he said, let me strut to it. Yeah, because it's not really a dance record, you know. And, and, and he said, you should be dancing. That's great. I'll, I'll, I'll dance to that. But he didn't want to dance to Stayin' Alive. Happy New Year. Welcome to a brand new episode of Not A Bomb Podcast in the year 2023. Brad, did you, did you have a good Christmas, good New Year's, holidays are kind of wrapping up? I, I did. I haven't worked in what feels like a month and I have to go back tomorrow. So, you know, I'm glad that I get to live my last little moments of vacation with you guys. Oh, yeah, I feel the same way. I, got go, I have to go to work tomorrow and I'm not excited about that, but had a great time off. And man, we are, we're charging into 2023 like gangbusters. Um, we're strutting into it, buddy. We're strutting into it. <laughs> so this time last year, we kicked off 2022 talking about our favorites from the previous year. So we got that out of the way with December. Now we're just picking movies, right? That either bombed at the box office, um, we're, we're just not favorites with the critics or bombed critically or both. Um, and we're starting out with a banger. Uh, it was my pick and I wanted to pick something. I, I was reading an article and it was talking about the worst sequels ever made and it was doing an entire ranking of it. And uh, I thought, oh my gosh, number one, we've got to talk about it because it's going to give us a chance to talk about a person that has come up before in a Brian De Palma film, but also gives us a chance to talk about another international superstar, but from the directing perspective. And um, also it's kind of a cheat because it gives us a chance to kind of talk about the film that inspired the sequel. So Brad, what are we kicking off 2023 with? We are kicking off 2023 with 1983's Staying Alive. Oh, Staying Alive. Staying There's a alive. G on it. Yes. yes. Uh, we could not have this discussion on this film without one of our favorites, so we had to bring back from Watch Get Plus, Jose. How you doing, man? Good. Happy New Year, guys. I can't think of a better way to spend the new year than recording with you guys. It's kind of like a homecoming for me, so oh. glad to be on. <laughs> I, I, hey, it's been a big year for you. I mean, you've had uh, how many episodes now with Watch Get Plus? Uh, so it's 20 official ones, and then there were three sort of like bonus episodes. Yeah, that's awesome. And you've yeah. had some bangers, man. I, I I love all your discussions. I think um, oh, thank you. you just released Babylon, right? Yes. That was the last one. And before one. that was Avatar Wow, The Way of Water. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, there's some great, great films to discuss. Um, we're going to talk about something uh, that actually, and Brad's going to get into the details, did quite well at the box office. So when we talk about criteria for the show, this one doesn't meet both, um, but we're going to also talk about the critical reception of tonight's movie, which is probably one of the biggest bombs on, on the critic perspective. 
So um, not only did it make lists as like the worst sequel ever made, but we'll get into that a little bit later. Where I wanted to start though, was the movie that um, I guess gave us John Travolta on the big screen. He was already kind of a thing with Welcome Back Cotter, the TV show in the 70s. But his, and he was, you know, he was showing up in a couple of films before Saturday Night Fever in 1977. But I think it's Saturday Night Fever that really catapulted him to just, you know, huge mega stardom, right? It, that's that's the general consensus. Yep. In prepping for this film, did you guys go back and, and catch the original? Absolutely, yes. Okay. Of course. And it was yes. not a first time watch for anybody, right? <clears throat> no, I hadn't watched it in probably a decade. So I used this as an excuse to go back and watch it. And someone that we know said, hey, it's also on Paramount Plus in 4K. So I was like, oh, I will check it out there. So I, I checked out the 4K stream of uh, Saturday Night Fever on uh, Paramount Plus. Now, here's the other question. Which version did you watch? So there's three cuts uh, floating around out there. There's an underrated cut, an R-rated theatrical, and a PG version. I believe it was the R. Yeah. Would that be the director's cut? No. Oh, that'd be the unrated cut, right? That's the unrated oh, cut. Oh, you're yeah. right. You're right. Yeah. I saw the unrated, but I grew up watching the, I guess, the PG version. Yeah. It's interesting when this thing kind of ported over into home media and especially cable, I think it was HBO had two versions of it. So the PG version was shown during the day and um, that one really took out a lot of, well, all the language and a majority of the sexual content. And then at, in the evening, they would show the R-rated theatrical version. Um, if you buy any of the new copies of this film on Blu-ray, I think I bought some special edition release of it. Uh, it has an unrated cut on there and, and they have some extra scenes in there. Um, like the the one off the top of my head that I can think of is the the sequence in the kitchen where Tony's dad finds out he's going back to work. That that's part of the official unrated. That wasn't in the theatrical. Um, Brad, when when did you first see Saturday Night Fever? Ooh, I don't remember. I'm I'm assuming I saw it on HBO because when I was growing up, I watched everything on HBO, regardless okay. if it was good, bad, or somewhere in between. So I'm sure I caught it multiple times on HBO. Um, I don't remember my initial viewing of it i'm sure because i was little and you know watching hbo i saw the middle you know a bunch of times the end a bunch of times the beginning a bunch of times i mean i've probably only seen it all the way through a few but we'll get into why why that is um in a little bit but yeah so what about your parents what did did were they oh. a fan <laughs> of this film oh my mom absolutely loves this movie um being that, you know, it's a Catholic family and um, the mother is very sort of my parents are nothing like his parents, but they're very sort of molded in the same way as Tony's mom and dad. OK, but you didn't grow up in sort of the zeitgeist of what Saturday Night Fever was, right? No, no. So when you, um, when you watch Sesame Street, there weren't Saturday Night Fever parodies or <laughs> not that I would have been able to pick up on oh, okay all right what about you jose um when when did you first catch this thing um probably as a kid on hbo um my parents had the vinyl and the eight track soundtrack and would play it a lot so i was familiar with the music um and i just remember watching it and 
wanting to like get past all the talking and see the dancing. That's what really fascinated me the most. Um, and I guess when we get into the uh, opinion of the of staying alive, uh, I sort of grew up on on movie musicals and uh, and when I say movie musicals, I mean uh, I did watch things like West Side Story or Singing in the Rain. But what but what really attracted me was this notion of like like a a film musical that wasn't based on another property. Uh, so things like Flashdance or um, Xanadu uh, that didn't start as Broadway musicals, but sort of were like their own thing. And so uh, I definitely was a fan of Saturday Night Fever and I did watch Staying Alive a lot. Um, but like I said, Xanadu, Flashdance, those were really sort of my bread and butter. In fact, I think Flashdance came out the same year as this. Yeah. Staying Alive. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Saturday Night Fever was one of my my parents' favorite films, and my dad loved this film. Uh, I remember going to see it in the theater a few times in the seventies because when this thing came out, I remember even at you know five <laughs> being dragged, not really knowing what I'm seeing, but enjoying the music. Didn't didn't remember anything else about it outside of the music, right? Um, and then after Grease came out the following year, I know some theaters were doing a double bill with Saturday Night Fever in Greece. And so anytime something like that would show up, we'd be going to the theaters again to see it. Um, so any anytime this sucker was on, we, we were watching it. And I think same as you, Jose, we might've had the A-track or the album. Um, my dad loved the film probably more than the music. He wasn't really a disco guy, but he was a huge, huge John Travolta um, fan. Even another film that came out as the same year um, as Staying Alive, which had John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John, two of a kind. I remember that being a big deal, um, and we had to go see that because, again, it was you know it, it was a combo of Olivia Newton-John, John Travolta. They thought they were going to bring the magic of Greece back, right? So I can't. Let me even, ask you all a question about yeah. 1978, John Travolta. Do we have any sort of context of how big he was in '78? I mean, because Staying Alive, or I'm sorry, Saturday Night Fever, and then Greece. Those are like two of the biggest American films of all time, and he's in both. Well, so I think to take a step back, that, it's Welcome yeah. Back, Cotter. So he he had made yeah, a okay. huge impact on television too, before you know those mm -hmm. film properties. And then I think it was also the combination of there was that movie, The Boy in the Bubble, yep. which was a TV movie. I remember that about the the kid who grew up with this sort of rare immune disorder and he had to grow up like in a bubble. Um, in fact, I think that then he played Trivial on, Pursuit with George Costanza. No, no, no. Wrong boy. In fact, I think that uh, Saturday Night Fever's production had to stop because Travolta attended the funeral of the uh, co-lead of that movie yeah. who had passed away. But theatrically, he was in Carrie as Billy Nolan. And that was released in 76. So I think just the combination of essentially being everywhere, right? You're on a regular TV show. You're in a successful um, TV movie. It might have even been a miniseries. I think there were two parts. And then Carrie. And then suddenly this comes out and he follows it up with like Grease. Like who doesn't love Grease? I feel like it's... Uh, Brad, Troy, Brad doesn't it, love it, Greece. I don't think. Oh. <laughs> no. Troy, I feel like I feel the same way about Greece that you do about like Top Gun and Top Gun Maverick. It's like I think it's un-American if you don't. Like I agree. Brad is very un-American <laughs> if you ask me. But hey, <laughs> no, it's it's weird. I, how big was he? I mean, he was a movie star, 
and I, I don't mean a movie star in the sense of, um, I, I don't know, the, the way we might have talked about George Clooney at the heyday or something of that nature. But it, it's really hard to put in context because if you think about today, and I, I know we've talked about this in the past, I don't know if there is a Saturday Night Fever grease combination that occurs outside of something like Tom Cruise. I mean, if you think about, okay, Tom Cruise is going to do Top Gun Maverick in 2022, and then he's going to follow it up with a Mission Impossible film, um, that that might be the equivalent of here's a movie star putting out hit after hit. Because there's no doubt the new Mission Impossible film is is just going to do gangbusters, right? Yep. Um, so I, I think it's Tom Cruise level, but without the Tom Cruise shenanigans, I, I mean. <laughs> at the time. At the time, yeah. Now, there's some shenanigans that went on with Travolta later in his career. But you're talking 77, 78. At this point in time, people aren't really getting that deep into the behind the scenes of Travolta. So all they know of him is everything that Jose said. So just think of him having sort of the the magnitude of cruisology, but without you know some of the silliness of of what we read in the tabloids, right? Okay. So huge. You know, he in a way it reminds me also of like Julia Roberts, who I always sort of mention in the same vein as Tom Cruise. Uh, I think Julia had had kind of a good run there, you know, Pretty Woman, Steel Magnolias, um, The Pelican Brief, and then some of those other stuff, Dying Young. Um, but I think the the crazy thing about Travolta is like he's he's almost like Nick Cage, like he was popular and then suddenly fades back into the, you know, into the background and then he comes back with a couple more movies and then he fades back and then, you know, so I, yeah, I, I feel like he's one of the few that that has been in not only notable award worthy films, but also Razzie films and direct to video films. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I, I cannot, you know, just stress enough how big of an influence that Saturday night fever was on the country, because you can always tell a movie really makes an impact when other films like airplane at the time had a whole Saturday night fever um, parody sequence within it. And airplane was, you know, huge comedy. Um, Grover shows up in the white suit, right? For a Sesame street parody <laughs> that, that whole thing of taking a PG version of a film and concentrating maybe on the music and the dancing, but then having an R rated version for the adults. I mean, that's pretty brilliant marketing when you think about it, because it gave it a way to, um, like all age groups to be exposed to this thing. And again, Saturday night fever, I'll, I'll be the first to say anytime I rewatch it, I have a nostalgia factor of kind of watching the PG version, but when you watch that unrated version, it it is a bit of a culture shock because you go, oh, this movie is not what you remember it to be if you saw the PG version. Um, it's, yeah. a, it's a very dark film. And uh, if you're watching it as an adult versus somebody who's just coming to it for the music and the dance sequence um, that that are you know quite revolutionary in that film, it, it's an, <laughs> man, it, it, it can, it can shock you, um, especially the last part of it. But I'm, I'm really curious since we all are visiting it. And um, I think Brad, before we started, you said this is the last film you watched in 2022, right? <laughs> it was the last film I watched in 2022. I, yep. I think for me too. It was it was right before you know finishing it and going out to celebrate New Year's. Um, and Jose, you watched it as well this week. I, I just want your thoughts real quick on revisiting this thing. So watching Saturday Night Fever from 1977. In 2022 or 2023, I'll start with you, Jose. What what was the experience like? What what did you think about it this time around? So I was. Uh, it had been a while since I'd seen it, even though I grew up watching it essentially. Um, but 
what really struck me about the film was that it's it's this jarring kind of take on coming of age um and maybe not even that because you know i was like wait a minute are they like 18 or 19 it turns out they're 20 right um maybe a little too old to be getting into some of the shenanigans that they're getting into but it's it's an interesting take on on again coming of age maturing and then sort of finding your own direction and what was interesting to me is that it was centered around the idea of dancing which you know it's not I mean, it's not the most masculine thing you would think about to want to be known for, right? But disco music and that sort of like nightclub lifestyle sort of brought it to the forefront. Um, so as a snapshot of pop culture that and, and wrapping that around a coming of age tale, that's what really struck me about how what great, what was really great about this movie. But the other thing that struck me too was his character arc and how you know at the end of the movie you know he well i'm gonna we're gonna spoil it obviously but you know he wins the competition the dance competition but he knows he's like okay that's bs the only reason why we won was because we're white and the runner-up were hispanic people um and he's like, you guys deserve this. And he has the integrity to say, you know what? There was somebody who was better than me. And I'm, you know, I was given this through my privilege, through the fact that I'm a frequent, you know, flyer at this establishment that everybody knows me, kind of like a homecoming prom king or queen sort of thing. And he has the balls to say, no, this is, I'm angry about this, you know? Um, and then that ambiguous ending, which I think, you know, I, I maybe it's different from the PG ending. I didn't get to look at the PG theatrical cut, but it was sort of like open ended. He's he's like, let's do it. Let's let's get out of Brooklyn. Let's see what the world has for us. And, and they leave you on this kind of like ambiguous type ending, like what's going to happen? Are they going to stay together? Are they really the right people for each other? Um, and I was also struck by the the diversity that they showed too, which kind of comes out of nowhere because in those last club scenes, um, there are African American contestants, there's Hispanic contestants. There's also this bit about uh, one of their friends is beaten up by a well, he says a Hispanic gang, and then they go out and they do this horrible act of violence. And then later in the hospital room, the guy's sort of like, "Oh, we well, you know, I just." I just said that. I don't know who really did it. And yeah. they're all standing around like, oh, we just committed a crime for you. Um, but I was struck by the inclusion and the diversity, which, you know, I, the reason why I love dancing at a club is like music and dancing is sort of like a universal language like math. Like, I think everybody can do it. Everybody might not be able to do it well, but you can certainly love a song, get out on the floor and move your body. It's this universal thing. And I liked that they portrayed the club albeit later in the film as being inclusive and diverse. Okay. Well, Brad, I look, I, I know you hate disco. That's yes. not your scene. <laughs> I hate disco. Yes. But could you, could you get over your hatred of disco to sit down with uh, this monumental film from the seventies and, and just indulge in it a little bit and come away with some thoughts? Yeah. Saturday Night Fever is one of those movies. When I watch it, I know it's importance. I can see its quality, but I know it's not for me really. Um, it is a coming of age story. Um, I just 
don't really like Tony that much. Um, and I don't like his friends. I don't like the choices he makes. I don't like the way he treats people. Um, the guy who got his girlfriend pregnant essentially is begging him to talk to him and help him out. And Tony's so selfish that he, that he just leaves after the guy even lets him borrow his car. Um, and then he's like, yeah, I promise I'll, I'll call you tonight. We'll talk about it. Um, and then kind of leads to that guy's downward spiral. But uh, mainly it's because like of all the disco, like I got the Bee Gees are God awful. <laughs> but uh, I, I, it's just, it's, it's just a film that I can appreciate from afar. And I know it's got a lot of quality to it. And I know it's importance. Like it's one of the most American films ever made. Um, and it's most like, when you think of the seventies, it's in the conversation of the most like seventies film. Um, and then one of the most important seventies films of all time, and maybe one of the most important New York films of all time. Um, Cause it really plays into that. Hey, we're from Brooklyn, people from Manhattan or this and that. And um, kind of plays into all of kind of those stereotypes we know about New York. Um, and <sighs> I, I can appreciate it. And when I watched it last night, I was like, oh, there's actually more to this that I enjoy than I initially kind of remembered. Um, Travolta's great. Um, it's funny when you see him in Staying Alive. He is smoking hot in Staying Alive. Like, holy <laughs> shit. Like, my my gay side was like, holy God, he is an attractive man in Staying Alive. In uh, Saturday Night Fever, not as much. I, I don't like the, uh, the hairiness of of uh Travolta but anyway um you know I, like it was better than I remembered and and I I think if I was 10 years older it probably affects me way differently um but I saw it I mean I I, I had to be 12 or 15 the first time I probably saw it all the way through and it's like at that point in time a dancing is not cool to me sorry Jose um, and eventually like going to clubs and, and doing stuff would eventually, uh, be pretty important in my life, but, uh, not like the coolest guy who could dance. I, I don't know. I don't know if the club stops in people like parting of the red sea, like they kind of say in the movie, like if that really is a thing, but maybe in, in disco it was. And then the lack of cocaine in this movie just really, <laughs> It really gets to me. It's oh like God. if they're doing disco and it's the seventies, like where is all the cocaine? They were uh, they were doing it off to the side, man. They I'm sure I'm sure they were. Uh, but they, anyway, they have no they have a lot of sequences referencing to it in terms of speed cocaine. I mean that yeah, yeah, Tony's friends are passing it around. Um yeah, all through yeah the there's the stuff. drug scene and stuff, but it's like, yeah. come on, you're doing coke. Come on. Um so wait, Brad, no no toe tapping to any of the music more than a woman night fever no dude disco disco just it gets to me um it's just really not for me and again the best thing that ever happened to disco was in 1979 when at kaminsky park they blew it up and it basically ended disco oh i thought he was gonna say disco duck but go ahead no (laughs) but again i i can appreciate this film from afar it's just not for me okay uh, I, I grew up on this film. I probably, I don't have the love for it that I think my father or parents had. I, I do love it though. I do, but I don't love it 
probably for the reasons that they did, which was the music and, and John Travolta specifically. Every time I watch this, I'm, I'm kind of reminded that this is a, this for me, and, and I'm, I'm going to name two films that it reminds me of. Like if you were to say Saturday night fever, if, if you were to group it with an other like films, I would say, okay, you could probably group it with Dancer in the Dark, the Bjork film. Um, and I think you could group it with Taxi Driver because this is not a feel-good film at all. And you, you made this comment, Brad, like um, Tony Monero, like you don't like him. I don't think you're supposed to. Mm-hmm. And I don't think you're supposed to. I, I mean, Jose kind of nailed it. It's sort of a coming-of-age film, but it's a really dark coming-of-age film. Yeah, that was one of the things I didn't remember this film being that dark and and some of the choices they make are really they make like going places. Terrible they choices. Make all the bad choices. Yeah, yeah, they make every bad choice you can think of, they've made it. I mean, Jose he talked about it. They their friend gets jumped, friend kind of tells them, Oh, it's this this other gang, so they go beat up the other gang, right? They pretty much commit a hate crime. And then yeah. the friend's like, Well, I I said it could have been them. It didn't <laughs> then you've got what pretty much amounts to a date rape scene in the back of a car. Um, you also have, um, you kind of talked about this, Brad, Tony's self-centeredness is so bad that when his friend is reaching out to him and you get to that final sequence on the bridge, one of the police officers is asking like, was this a suicide? I, I it could be, I think mm-hmm. you could very well make the case for it. Cause the kid just didn't see a way out with his problem and his friends certainly weren't helping him. Um, and every time Tony tries to make a decision, uh, that is good. So just recognizing that, okay, the only reason I won this dance contest is because I'm from this neighborhood and I'm Italian and any other minority of diversity comes in, they're only going to take second place and he rallies against it. But in the next scene, um, he just attacks that girl in the car and she scratches him. So he is not a great character. And even by the end of the film, I don't think it's really about, are these two people going to get together? The question is, I mean, he, he approaches her and says, I saw what you did. You got out of this area. You tried to better yourself. You're taking these classes or whatnot. I want to move out and I want us to be friends and you can help me. And he wants to get away um, with, with that sort of suicide or, or bridge fall being the, the pivot, right? And saying, okay, that's the pinnacle of all the bad decisions and then he hops in a subway and spends the night just touring around the city, ends up at her place to apologize, and then says, I, I want to be friends. And she's like, do you think you can? He's like, oh, I'm going to try. The fact that he uses words like try, and I'm going to do my best, and I'm going to do this, it doesn't give you a fuzzy good feeling that they're going to make it as friends. No, even. You, you've seen his how good his word is anyway. Like his his word is worth shit. Oh, it is. And, and what's, what's amazing is – when like if you were to tell me what's a good companion piece to this i would say watch this back to back with taxi driver and then tell me how different travis bickle and tony monero are i I think there are more similarities than differences in that character um and then when you look at subversion of the musical like dancer in the dark with bjork i mean that that is a total subversion of the hollywood musical i think there's a lot of that going on with saturday night fever as well it's filmed beautifully. The dance sequences, regardless if you like disco or not, you cannot um, 
you cannot escape the fact that the camera placement, the cinematography during the dance sequences is so good and kinetic and you don't lose any of the skill on screen of what's going on. But I'm telling you, um, I think uh, some of us who grew up on that PG version, we, we got into the Bee Gees and the, and the disco and, um, then it, you know, you have Grover in a white suit and you're like, Oh yeah, Saturday night fever is kind of a fun film, but you go back and watch this thing, the R rated or the unrated version. And you're like, Holy cow, this is pure 70 cinema. And what makes it so good is you have this middle class, um, or to lower class Italian American family. And you have this central character that works at a paint store and all he's doing is just busting his chops so that he can make money so that he can be the face of the disco and continues to make bad choices because of the people he's involved with. He meets a person that might kind of guide him out of that, but even then he can't commit to that totally from a character perspective. Um, it's, it's a good film. It's, it's a gut punch of a film. That last 15 minutes is a gut punch in my yeah. opinion. It's funny. We always talk about Kung Fu films and, and cinematography and, and choreography. Mm -hmm. And we always like, well, you know, it basically Kung Fu films are musicals are. in a way. Yeah. And you, when you're talking about that, it's like you need to stage action set pieces like they do in this film. Cause you can see everything. All the action is, you know, right there. You don't lose any of it. Um, you know, you can see how complicated the steps are. Um, so it's funny how, I love one side of the coin and the other side, like nothing, but they're yeah. basically the same thing. I still get goosebumps in that more than a woman scene when they're dancing together yes. and then his solo, just, just watching it. But you know, more to your point, Troy, about what you were saying, I think the reason why he takes that long train trip and decides I'm going to get out of Brooklyn is because I think when he realizes, you know, he's only the face of it because He's a white guy. He's privileged from Italian, from uh, an Italian American in Brooklyn. That was the one thing he lived for. That's why he made all of his money, right? So that he could go to the club and he could dance and he could do all these things. That was when he came alive. And to know that that wasn't there for him, there's nothing else left for him in Brooklyn. Oh, absolutely. So what you're saying, it's, this film is completely woke. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it could. I, I, yeah, it could. I, I think. Yeah, I think what's interesting about it is. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's interesting because that that let's call it third act. You get the uh, dance contest, and you're absolutely right. He is crushed by the fact that he may not be as good as what he thinks he is. That he, in fact, is only getting the accolade and the the face status because of what he is. Right. Then he follows that up with a bad decision with his dance partner. She scratches and runs away. Then, you know, his friends are like, hey, this girl agreed to have sex with all of us and she's in the back seat. And as soon as she's like, no, 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 he's there to witness it, doesn't do anything about it. And then his friend pretty much commits suicide off a bridge. I mean, this is all happening in the last 20 minutes of the film, pretty much. And it's yeah. his whole world cr just crumbling down. And he has this epiphany um, that just basically says, if I continue like within this environment, I'm going to continue making these bad choices. I'm going to be, you know, continue hurting people. Um, and he, he just realizes what he is, isn't really anything, um, of significance that he thought he was right. And then he goes to his friend and, and shares this epiphany and says, I want to get out. And then the movie ends, but it doesn't end with this certainty. Um, I, I really love that ending because again, it's a bit ambiguous. It's like, yeah, he, he, he might make it. He also might not based on all the choices that you saw made up to that. 
So that that's what makes it really good, you know, cinema. Um, and again, it's one of the best of the seventies, but I, you know, I would urge everybody if you're like, man, I, I don't think I want to watch this because it's a disco dance film or something. Hey, I would go out and say, look, if, if you like some of that seventies, darker cinema, Saturday night fever is up there with it. Yep. Yeah, I was really surprised at how dark it was. I had completely forgotten the last 20 minutes or so and just how dark it, it gets and how essentially the culmination of Tony's bad decisions throughout the whole film punch him in the gut at the last 20 minutes of this movie. Yeah. And I had this question. I don't know what you guys think. So um, how do you think people view it today? So Brad, you're, I was really interested in how you would approach this because you're looking at it from an appreciation of the film itself mm-hmm. and its importance, but you go, man, I don't like disco. So for younger viewers that are coming to it, that might be of a generation in their twenties or thirties who had never even seen this film. Do you think they're going to look at Saturday night fever as some kind of seventies classic depicting some very you know tough social settings for Italian Americans? Or do you think, they would view it as a film that promotes sort of um, abhorrent behavior. And, and I guess a better way to, to ask the question is, do you think people are going to equate this film to more like Footloose or, or Taxi Driver? I would say it kind of leans more towards Taxi Driver in a way. Because <sighs> like, if you think about the beginning of, say, something like Goodfellas, where you have Italian-Americans like trying to come up, they're doing some shenanigans. Even in that film, like, you know, when young Henry's selling cigarettes and stuff like that, it's like not played as dark as some of the stuff in this movie. And like, that's Goodfellas. You're thinking, well, Goodfellas is way darker than Saturday Night Fever. But some of the like repercussions of decisions in Saturday Night Fever are just as dark as some of the stuff that happens in Goodfellas. And Mm -hmm. I would never have equated that. So I think it's way darker than, you know, you're led to believe because. I mean, you think disco, you think all this like poppy sort of clean cut, very sort of, you know, fun and energetic and and rhythmic. And then you get it like just positions to like these kind of abhorrent sort of events that happened in this film. Um, It would be tough. Like, I, I don't know if you don't have context for it. If if you can understand just like how on the spectrum, those are differently and, and thematically and things like that. Like disco and, and the, the consequences in this film cannot be more polar opposites. Um, and I think it could be a big turnoff to people because you have these club scenes that are real fun. And, you know, there's a, a sequence where Travolta gets like a three or four minute dance solo and then they go beat up, they go commit a hate crime. Yeah. And you're like, this is in the same movie. So it it, it is kind of tough. Like when I was watching it, I was thinking about, wow, this is way tougher of a film than I, than I thought it's got some grit. Um, and I don't know if, if someone who was say like 15 years old goes and watches this, but does, it doesn't have a whole lot of context for it, what they would kind of interpret and what they would take away. Okay. What do you, what do you think Jose? So I think that there's stuff in here that's still actually relevant, even though, as I had said before, it's it's almost a snapshot of that of Brooklyn in that particular time. But I think everybody can relate to 
being in a, a family with siblings where the parents favor one other person, right? Or you're witnessing strife between mom and dad. And how does that affect you? Even if you feel like it, if you say it doesn't affect you, how that does affect some of your relationships um, about not being happy at work and wanting to, you know, have a better job and have better friends. Um, I think if people can relate to some of the issues that are that are in here, or having friends that are reckless and sort of pull you into their into their mess, and then you're sort of like, oh, great, whatever. So I, I, I think that there's enough here that's that's universal that even now with our with the way things are, our society uh, that I think people can relate to, um, and and especially on a human level of you know, kind of dating a girl and having sex with her, but then you see this other hot girl and maybe the grass is greener over there and then sort of working out that kind of, that that dynamic, right? Um, knowing that you can't really keep people on the back burner thinking you're gonna get something better. And then when that doesn't work out, you try to go back to them or you try to mince back to them. So um, I think it's actually still pretty relevant today. And I was, again, shocked about the, inclusivity of other races and, and um, you know, uh, within the working class uh, that was included in the in the movie that I didn't remember because I think I had been watching all along the PG version, you know? Yeah, it, it was interesting. So after after watching the first one, of course, I go to good old faithful Google and I'm like, OK, what what do more recent reviewers or people who are discovering this film, what are they thinking of it? Right. And so you you do run across these articles. So I found one from like Vanity Fair, great article from, from 2017. And I'll, I'll just read an excerpt from it. Take away the lush seductive music, the dancing and Travolta's charisma, and suddenly Saturday Night Fever becomes almost an updated American version of grim Italian neorealism. Even with those sweetening commercial elements, however, this look at the tribal rights of the new Saturday night still remains bracingly dark. For all of the pleasure and entertainment the dancing and soundtrack provide, Saturday Night Fever is, at its core, a stone-cold bummer, and that's why it has endured far beyond the death of disco. So you, you read some of these articles, and you're like, wow, they get it, and there's some good analysis. But for every one of these— talking, Oh, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I was going to say, I think you're talking about—this uh, is an article by Nathan Rabin. It's called— there's an alluring darkness beneath Saturday Night Fever's disco floor. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a good article. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I, no, I no. And, and, and you read stuff like that. There's a lot of those articles. But to counter that, there are newer people coming to this. And I, I, I found two articles um, not as famous as Vanity Fair. But again, Google presents these in top searches. And so there's an article from her campus from April 9th, 2019. So I'll read an excerpt from this one. For those who haven't fully watched the movie Saturday Night Fever, I was in the same boat. I always heard how great it was. The film was always listed as a cult classic, even though there was no reason as to why, which is crazy to me. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> why? <clears throat> okay, sorry. Being the curious person I am, I watched it like most classic 70s and 80s movies. The beginning scene didn't tell us much regarding what the movie was going to be about. There's just a ridiculously long scene where John Travolta playing as Tony Monero walks down the street carrying a can of paint and checking out a couple of girls. This tone of boring nonsense was most of the movie. A racial slur here and a few people doing the disco there, but nothing was making the movie remotely interesting until after the scene where John Travolta and his dancing partner won the dancing competition at the local disco club. 
I went into this movie thinking I was going to be like, it was going to be like any other popular dancing movie, like Step Up or Footloose. However, I just couldn't give over, couldn't get over that horrible scene along with how awful the entire movie was. I strongly recommend that this generation look into this movie and make certain that the popularity of this movie dwindles to a point where the next generation doesn't even hear the title. They had a really serious problem with the with the back part of it. I think that's a really strong reaction. But as we're talking about this, I think another movie you can definitely liken this to is Showgirls. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yes. Showgirls, even more so, is about superficiality about backstabbing there is an awful rape scene it's about how people are just greedy and selfish and power hungry and all out for themselves um i, I think it's too strong of a reaction for the the author's name is perry zuniga p-e-r-i-e mm-hmm. the articles to entitled saturday night fever rape scene um on her campus as you noted but i, I think that's a strong reaction for her to say let's bury this film it shouldn't be seen by anybody oh, I, I don't here, here's I, I another strong reaction from fanfare um february 25th 2021 so a little newer one this article was entitled uh, was titled saturday night fever what is it was an exemplar of gaslighting and rape culture this wow. movie is way darker than later generations were led to believe it was and while it says a great deal about boomer nihilism of the era it says even more about rape culture. Um, and here's another section. Nevertheless, there's really some kind of social undercurrent in how Saturday Night Fever gets presented as this fun and carefree retrospective of the disco era, a romp full of John Travolta dancing, rather than this intensely dark subject matter it actually covered. And the fact that the origin story which led to the script was complete bullshit. So I'll stop here. You can go and yeah. read about the story that inspired Saturday Night Fever. That's kind of interesting. We won't delve into that. And if any, anyone wants an example of how insidious rape culture is and an example of how it its very premises also collapse in on itself, look no further than this movie. Okay, mm. so I never – like to, to, to want to banish a film from like the zeitgeist is – it's not something I'm down with regardless of any film. I, I think we should be challenged and we should be able to say this movie came out in 1977, completely different time. Yes. In 1977, rape was bad, but they're not depicting rape as like great in this movie. Like look at how it affects him. Look at how it like there is consequences to some of these actions to say, oh, it's just about rape and gaslighting and, and racial slurs, like you're missing the goddamn point. Like, <laughs> it's, it's it's not like it's I've, not like I agree. Every, it's not like at the end of the movie, Travolta wins the lottery and is like, yay, everything worked out for me. It's it's not looking good for him. And, and, and so, look, there's a lot of films that I wish would go away, but I, I still think we should be able to see them. It should be challenged. We should be able to say, wow, we've evolved as a culture. And, you know, a lot of people bring up like, oh, like Revenge of the Nerds is like unwatchable now. I'm like, well, it was different. You know, like, yes, same thing. They play rape as a joke in that movie and it's a poor joke and it's not funny. But now that we know that, like, that's a good thing. That's good that we can look back on and say, wow, that's bad. It, because I, we've evolved into a better society. Yeah, but I don't, it doesn't mean I don't want people to watch Revenge of the Nerds. 
I, I don't can, think you can compare Saturday Night Fever to Revenge of the Earth. I, I think like you, the rape scene is very sort of kind of I'm just saying like they're uh, both have like these gnarly well, rape scenes. And I think this goes back to I mean, you can use a modern lens and and look at older films through that and critique them. I remember there was this big thing about how um you know, the younger generation was sort of like, we don't like the breakfast club. It's, it, it condones bullying and, and, you know, appearances and stuff like that or whatever, which is not how I took that movie when I saw it or whatever. You can look at these films at, through that lens and be critical, but I think it's disingenuous mm. to say, you know, it doesn't match my point of view. So we should just get rid of it. Yeah. I, I, you know, thank God for their opinion. I, I in fact, it, I learned some things when Troy told me or Troy read some of those quotes from it. I can see how it can be taken that way. Um, and it, it, you know, we often want to go back and say, well, that was a different time. People were educated a different way or they came up a different way. I, I know that that's an excuse, but when, especially when we look at cinema, it is always reflecting back the times when it's, when it's being made, even if it's, a historical film that's made at a certain time, it still reflects the attitudes and the views. So, yeah, but um, I, I, I'll take it a step further. Like, I don't think, I think Brad nailed it. Like watching a movie like Saturday night fever and not having the maturity factor to sit back and look at it or even be able to discuss it and kind of go, okay, what does, what does this, what is this film saying? Because I don't think, just my opinion. I don't think this thing would have endured the test of time if it even hinted that it was promoting gaslighting and rape culture. I, right. I think the fact that it puts those subjects square front in this person's life, and to Brad's point, you see the repercussions of this, or you see, you know, a character trying to escape all of this. Um, you you can make all of those same arguments for something like Taxi Driver. For you know the Travis Bickle antihero, hell, there's tons of films, especially from the 70s, 80s, even up to the 90s, that you can look at and go, how are you supposed to get behind these characters? I don't think you're supposed to get behind these characters. I think you're supposed to look at the scenario, the environment, and what is the director, or the filmmaker saying more so. And I, I don't I, again, if this if this film even hinted that, oh my gosh, that that rape scene in the car um, or the hate crime that occurred, that's really cool. And that, that's why everybody likes this film. I don't think that's it at all. I, I think the director specifically and the screenwriter is saying, look, here is an element of the culture that was occurring and it's bad. Like you should not emulate yourself off of this person. And again, that's why for me, it has more in common with Dancer in the Dark or Taxi Driver or Showgirls. Um, I, I think it's a, a look at this life and this lifestyle um, and you know, this character specifically, it's a very character driven study and, uh, you feel grimy afterwards. Well, I think it also, when, when films hold a mirror up to the society that it's made in at the time, and then we go back and, and look at those films we're like, Oh, people were doing these things because we're depicting them in films. And that becomes hard to swallow because the art is reflecting the reality of the time. And so a lot of times people are like, oh, so, you know, girls are being raped and this and that and hate crimes. Like, yeah, it was happening. Like, I, I'm sorry that it wasn't um, all rainbows and Skittles and all that stuff. Like it, it, <laughs> it was dirty. It was grimy. And look, like 
we can't go back and, and change things. Um, and the art just reflects the time. And yeah, we can, we can look at it in 2023 and say, Ooh, that's bad. Obviously it is, but there's gotta be some sort of subtlety and, and some sort of nuance that people can take from it and be like, Oh, but Tony's a bad guy and he suffers consequences and he's isolated at the end and we don't know, you know, what he's going to do. So yeah, I, I think when you just boil it down to a few scenes and some, some racial slurs and, and all that, I think you're just missing the point. Absolutely. hundred percent. Yeah. So we have this grim, dark look <laughs> at American culture in 1977. And six years later, we get a movie that was intended as a redemption piece for the Tony Monero character. Um, so I, I would equate it to this. If, if you walked out of taxi driving, you're like, well, what happened to that Travis Bickle guy? <laughs> <laughs> and you want to see taxi driver too. That's kind of what we got with staying alive in 1983. Right? So the idea was let's pick up, um, a few years later and Tony Monero was supposed to move out of, um, his mom's and dad's house. See if you can make it as a dancer five, six years later, what happens? And that brings us to this early eighties gem, Brad, <laughs> we always kick it to you. Yeah. So this is, I think where people are going to be shocked because I was totally shocked. I, for the longest time, um, and in full disclosure, saw this opening day because my parents were so excited about it. So saw it in the theater, remember everything about it. Um, but, um, a lot of people were super excited about a sequel to Saturday night fever. And like I said, I picked this one because I saw it as an article as one of the worst sequels ever. And I'm like, well, we got to talk about it on a show that addresses critical bombs. Right. But Brad, take us back in the time machine, 1983, this movie is birthed upon the nation. How did it do? <laughs> yeah. So I just want to give a little bit of context on the, on the figures here. So keep in mind, Saturday night fever costs $3.5 million. It made $237 million during its run. <laughs> wow. So, wow. Pretty that's successful. And that's for a rated R film. So, you know, that's, that's pretty, pretty big take. Um, fast forward to 1983, July 15th, 1983 to be more specific. And we have staying alive with a budget of $22 million in Troy. I was completely and utterly shocked when I saw this number it makes $65 million domestically, another $62 million internationally for a $127 million total box office gross. Um, in to the put 80s, that, that's amazing. To, yeah. To put that in context, if you were talking about the dollar conversion today, so a dollar in 1983 is about two ninety nine three dollars in 2022. So you're looking at three times that. Yep. Yeah, so it's about um, three hundred and eighty-one million dollars. Good job. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, for a um, pretty much sixty million dollar budgeted film, if it were made for sixty million dollars today, it would have it would have been a huge hit. Three hundred eighty-one million. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so opening weekend, it makes twelve point one million dollars. That's good enough for first place. Wow. Yeah. It beats out films like Star Wars Episode Six: Return of the Jedi, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, the 1983 re-release, Trading Places, War Games, Octopussy, Superman 3, Porky's 2, Flashdance, and Twilight Zone, the movie. 
So he beat out James Bond, Jedi's. Oh my gosh. Superman. Superman's. Superman's. Yeah. And strippers. And and porkies. And and dicks. And porkies. And Um, dicks. um, (laughs) So the reason why Staying Alive is on a show called Not a Bomb is because, Troy, we got a big fat goose egg when it comes to the critics. Wow. Zero percent. Oh, for 28 on the critics. And with the audience, it sits at a 39%. Sadly, the Christians did not review this film. Um, I know. And I was really, I was really bummed about it. I looked for other Christian ones too. They weren't very good. So um, I was going to say it was going to be a negative one. (laughs) I was going to say, you know, provocative dancing and the the last set piece is all about Satan's alley. Satan's so alley. Nobody beats Satan, three. so I'm 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 with Jose's negative. <laughs> yeah, but he one. didn't beat Satan with prayer. He beat him with very erotic dancing. Fight so. dancing. <laughs> he beat him with fight dancing. Okay. <laughs> yes. Okay. Films you could have seen, July 1983. So, staying alive is almost 40 years old. In case you were wondering. Uh, oh my god. Wow. You have Stroker Ace. Yeah, Burt Reynolds. Yeah. You have uh, Class. Oh, yeah. Jaws 3D. Rob Lowe. Yeah. Ooh. Mr. Mom. Wow. July 22nd, you could have seen Class, Jaws 3D, and Mr. Mom all at the same time. And then you have Kroll, National Lampoon's Vacation, and Private School. Wow. Oh, Private School. Phoebe Cates. Yeah, yep. Phoebe Cates. <laughs> that's that's uh, all the numbers I got for you, buddy. All right. Wow. Well, Jose, I, I am not anymore, when you're on, even going to try and tackle um, oh. anything that goes on behind the camera. So I'm just going to kick it over to you. Oh, one, one of the other reasons why I wanted to pick this. So there's going to be two names that pop up. I think Brad quite a bit this year. One is John Travolta. Mm-hmm. And the other one is the director of this film. Because when, when you kind of touched on this, Jose, when you go back and look at the careers, these two men really have a lot of peaks and valleys and they're very interesting peaks and valleys. Um, I'll say this, John Travolta, when he bombs, he bombs in a, in a very interesting way. Okay, so he bombed critically, big goose egg on this one. But um, Jose, I'm gonna kick it over to you because the people behind the screen, specifically one name um, is a real shocker when you think about, hey, we're looking for a director to Saturday Night Fever, this really dark and gritty 70s film. Um, who are we gonna get? And uh, who'd they get, Jose? Who they got? They got the one and only Sylvester Enzio Stallone. Yeah. <laughs> Who, you know, I thought the exact same thing when I thought, hey, let's let's get a sequel with, you know, musical dance numbers. Who do we get? We get Sly Stallone. I, I'm i still trying to figure that out, how that happened. But, well, um, ob- obviously, I there, we'll, we'll get know, into that production development. There, there is a reason why it happened. Yeah. And so his brother is heavily involved, too. Correct. Uh, uh, yeah. We'll, we'll get to that one. Live too. and well. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, I don't think I need to explain Sylvester Stallone. I think we all know him. He had very, very humble beginnings in a film called Party at Kitty and Studs, which was also <laughs> called Italian Stallion. By the way, I tracked down the DVD copy of it. It really is awful, but it's a softcore porn film. Anyway, uh, you know, eventually Sylvester is in films, Lords, Lords of Flatbush, Death Race 2000, and then eventually he starts writing and directing like his own films. And obviously we know him from Rocky. We know him from his action films like Tango and Cash, Demolition Man, um, the Rambo series as well, which he was very prominent in terms of 
not only developing it, writing the script for it, but he's obviously been in all of the movies. I think it's what been seven of them. Is that right? Six. Maybe there's six. Maybe there's six. Um, This is interesting on IMDb. Apparently he has these following nicknames, Sly, Michael, I don't know where the Michael comes from. The Italian stallion, Mm -hmm. Binky. Binky? (laughs) Binky. I don't know. Okay. But so Stallone is a writer, a producer, and a director on this. Let me start with some of the other producers, most notably Norman Stigwood. He is Australian-born, and obviously musicals are his thing. He produced the 1973 Jesus Christ Superstar um, which was choreographed by a gentleman named Robert Iscave, who would go on to make his own sort of modern movie musicals, including the amazing From Justin to Kelly, which I'm waiting for Not a Bomb to actually do. <laughs> I love that movie. I memorized all the dances. I love it. I love it. Oh, anyway, I, hold um, on. I got to make a note. What was that one from <laughs> Justin to Kelly? Oh, God. Yeah. Damn it. Uh, I'm adding that to the list. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. Go um, on. We have a also, we're doing a secondary show this year that might need to go on that. List. That's exactly what I was thinking. No. So thank you for that recommendation. Uh, Mr. Stigwood also produced the following movies: Tommy, Saturday Night Fever, Grease, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, Grease Two, Troy's favorite, <laughs> Times Square, and Alan Parker's big screen adaptation of Evita. He also did some drama movies: The Fan starring uh, Lauren Bacall and Michael Bean, and then Gallipoli, which was about the World War One Turkey campaign uh, following Australian soldiers that were drafted into that. Um, he So actually, some of these other producers have connections with Sly Stallone as well and or other musicals that were produced by Stigwood. So I think that they all sort of like knew each other, but more to your point, Troy, I think that at this time, Stallone actually had a... Uh, producing and directing deal with Paramount. Three-picture deal. Um, mm-hmm. Three-picture deal, of which this was the only film that he fulfilled, basically. Yeah. There was also there's also some weird talk, and this is going to come back later when I talk about the choreographers. There was some weird talk about Stallone and Travolta apparently being in Godfather Part 3. Yes. Or a, mm-hmm. a sort of update of The Godfather as a Part 3. But then when all of the returning players came, that was sort of jettisoned. And apparently Stallone was notoriously difficult because every project they sent his way, he just had problems with. And eventually Paramount was like, we're going to cut you loose. Because <laughs> you're well, not getting anything this, done. This is the era, too, where he wrote the screenplay. They, they wanted him to do Beverly Hills Cop. So he yep. submitted the screenplay. They didn't like it at all because of the budget. So he's so as the story goes, I mean, that when he left, he said, I'm taking the screenplay with me. And and that became Cobra. Um, so, yes, yeah, indeed. Um, our DP is a gentleman named Nick McLean. Uh, obviously, he came up through camera and electrical department. His first cinematography film is Cheech and Chong's next movie. Yeah, <laughs> I is. think I think if you have Cheech and Chong on your resume, you're great. <laughs> but nonetheless, he has that's their worked. Second, that's their second film, yeah. by the way. Not as good oh, as is, the first one, but yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what was it? Nice Dreams? Was that the first one? Up and Smoke. Or Up and Smoke. Up and Smoke. Yeah. Got it. I've seen all of them. Ralph. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> so uh, McLean has shot films for Burt Reynolds, um, Stick, City Heat, Stroker Ace, um, the TV series Evening Shade, which he was on, and the Seminoles seminal 80s films the goonies short circuits Spaceballs, and mac and me which i think 
landed him in movie jail because after that, almost all his credits are television. Ooh, I, got, I got to make another note. Mac and yeah, me. God, sorry, that, go was, that was miserable. Decision to do this. Man, this is some two bangers right there. Our production designer is Robert F. Boyle. He started as an art director for 71 films from the 40s through the 60s, wow. including films like Cape Fear, How to Succeed in Business Without Trying. That's also a musical. In Cold Blood, The Thomas Crown Affair. He's primarily known as a producer. I'm sorry, a production designer for the Hitchcock movies, North by Northwest, The Birds, and Marnie. It's pretty high profile there. He's done other films like Winter Kills, which is fantastic if you've never seen that, um, starring Jeff Bridges. Mm -hmm. Explorers, which was a movie I saw repeatedly on HBO, which I enjoyed. Jumpin' Jack Flash and the uh, big screen reboot of Dragnet with Dan Aykroyd. He has also been the production designer for these following movie musicals, um, Mame, Fiddler on the Roof, and Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. Again, continuing oh. his relationship with uh, Burt Reynolds. Love that. Movie. Uh, we have we have three editors, um, and when you see this film, you will you will realize it takes three editors to mess up this film. <laughs> um, but each of these editors, what's interesting about them, they are Peter Berger, Mark Warner, and Don Zimmerman. Almost all of them have a buttload of genre pictures to their credit. So Peter Berger, we've got four Star Trek films. Um, Mark Warner, he has edited 48 Hours, Big Trouble in Little China, Weird Science, The Running Man. Don Zimmerman has done like Men in Black 3, Red 2, Rush Hour 3, Jumper, Galaxy Quest, and Cobra, Rocky 3 and Rocky 4. That's the Stallone connection. Mm -hmm. So I went through their resume and arguably Berger, the only musical type films he's ever done edited are kiss meets phantom of the park, which was my favorite television movie to watch. That's a fantastic um, movie. It's fantastic. Not only did it kind of scare me, but it also like got me up and dancing and loving, you know, kiss. I'm going to write that one down too. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, save the last dance. Warner has done. Hell yeah, um, that movie's awesome. <laughs> Warner has edited Mal's Last Dancer, which deals with dancing. The Running Man, which you remember, has not only commercial montages, but the Paula Abdul choreographed mm -hmm. dance sequences throughout the film. And Leap of Faith, which also has some music uh, sort of sequences to it as well. That's the Steve Martin comedy. Don Zimmerman, no musicals for him. I don't know. Um, okay, so our choreography. I know, Troy, you had a big question. This about is this. the one I'm really interested in. So it's it's a married couple. Denon and Saber Rawls, Saber as in lightsaber or Saber as a sword. I'm sorry, their first names are Denon and Saber? Denon Rawls and Saber Rawls. Sounds like yeah. an 80s action. Those two people have gone to like a swingers party a few times. Like you, you don't have those names. Denon without, and like, Saber. <laughs> yeah. Probably, although it's spelled S-A-Y-B-H-E-R. Oh, okay. That's anyway, like a European spelling, um, sure. <laughs> their mentor. He's offering is a up a lot of mustache rides. Okay, <laughs> keep going. Uh, he does have a fantastic mustache. If you Google him, by the way. Um, so their mentor is one Steve Peck, who is an actor, choreographer, and director. He's a dance master for the dance uh, forms of jazz, Latin dances, and partner and performance skills. He actually was a tango dancer in The Godfather Part Two. Um, which, again, I think he's also worked with choreographers like Robert Iscave and producers like Stigwood as well. And so I think there's the connection. That's how they got hooked up with Stallone through through all of the sort of working with Stallone and different projects, etc. 
They both come from performance and dance backgrounds, starting from very, very young ages. She has square dancing, ice skating on her resume. He started in ballroom and Latin, but they eventually both joined the Stephen Peck Jazz Company. So a lot of what you're seeing in this film is jazz and ballet, essentially, and then some ballroom and a lot of partner dancing. They have worked internationally. They have been in countless television shows and commercials, worked with some of the most famous choreographers in the business. They've been commissioned works for universities and colleges. So they're very, very well known in dance circles. They have six feature film choreography credits. Um, We have obviously this movie, but also Voyage of the Rock Aliens with Pia Zadora, which I love. I do too. Yeah, (laughs) I have that on Blu-ray. So um, Voyage of the Rock. Which I love. And I have to tell you, the dancing in that is so fun. It was odd to see the. the That's the one that will destroy Brad's uh, brain. So that that might come sooner than later. And then the 80s dance uh, themed flicks, Club Life, Dance Academy, Jailbird Rock, which I've never seen, but I'm going to seek out. That stars Robin Anton, who founded the Pussycat Dolls. But apparently this this film, Jailbird Rock, the summary is women in a women's prison put together a musical as the sort of like uh diversion so that they can escape from the jail it actually sounds pretty great i don't know it's probably bad and then they uh, choreographed uh, warren Beatty's bugsy um oh. now the writers sylvester stallone wrote that now we were talking before about how dark saturday Night fever is mm-hmm. that was written by a gentleman named norman wexler who yep. is an interesting cat not only is he harvard educated and apparently had bipolar disorder and was arrested in 1972 by the FBI. Uh, apparently, he said he was going to plan to shoot Nixon. So they arrested him and questioned him. Um, but he loves to court controversy. So if you look at the films that he's written, in 1970, there's a film called Joe starring Peter Boyle. Let me just read you the summary from IMDb. Two men, Bill, a wealthy conservative, and Joe, a far-right factory worker, form a dangerous bond after Bill confesses to Joe about murdering his daughter's drug dealer boyfriend. So apparently, these two conservatives get get together. They drum up some sort of conservative bloodlust, and I believe the movie ends with like a slaughter of like hippies and stuff like that. Yeah, I've and seen the it. Po- and the poster, the tagline says keep America beautiful. So if we we want to talk about something that's maybe relevant for this time as well. Um, And in fact, Peter Boyle was so shocked by the audience's reaction to the violence in this. He actually swore off doing violent movies. If you read a script and it was too violent um, just because of his of his seeing audiences liking hippies being killed and cheering that on, he was utterly disturbed. So not only is it that Susan Sarandon's first film or one of her first films, it's I think it's one of her first films, and I believe she was naked in it too, right? Um, and then he wrote Serpico, 1973, Sidney Lumet's Serpico with mm-hmm. Al Pacino. Obviously, that was about you know a whistleblower in the corruption for like the police force. Um, and then we come to Mandingo and Drum, its sequel. So Mandingo is. Um, It's a 1975 film. It's basically about a plantation owner who buys a slave to be his um, bandingo, meaning he's going to breed other stronger slaves. But then he uses this gentleman 
um, in like these sort of like slave fight to the death tournaments to win names, win a name for his like plantation. Um, Quentin Tarantino. Uh, yeah. Quentin Tarantino. This is our Quentin Tarantino reference. He is. Well, that's not the only reference we'll have tonight. So go (laughs) true. But he has remarked that in the history of film, Mandingo and Showgirls are basically two examples of major studios making and releasing what are essentially big budget exploitation picks. Yeah. And of course he loves both of those movies. <laughs> so, and it's a Richard Wexler, Fleischer film, I believe, right? Is yes. It Mandingo? Yeah. Yep. Um, odd choice for that as well. Uh, mm-hmm. So he wrote this and then his only other writing credit after this is raw deal with the other big action star of the 80s, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. And uh, that is below the line for quite an interesting film. Huh? Wow, that's uh, that's that's some crazy. But thank you for all of the recommendations. Now we have um, coming up on the show too. Yes. Uh, so let's talk about the people in front of the camera. We've we've talked about John Travolta as Tony Manero. Again, context-wise, um, Saturday Night Fever was seventy-seven, Grease was seventy-eight, Urban Cowboy nineteen eighty. Uh, Blowout, 1981, which we talked about. He follows Blowout with this one, Staying Alive. But also in the same year, he gets back together with Olivia Newton-John for Two of a Kind, which is another bomb. And then follows that up with a Jamie Lee Curtis joint called Perfect. Mm, um, perfect. What a great one. <laughs> yeah, that, that that's another weird movie. And then in 1994, he makes he's a stars in the greatest film of all time. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we've talked about this. Travolta just has, again, peaks and valleys, right? He's sitting at the top and then he starts to kind of come down. And then all of a sudden somebody will revive his career. He's done this like two or three times. It's crazy. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, Cynthia Rhodes as Jackie. So she is retired from acting. She doesn't have a lot of credits, but she's in a lot of 80s stuff. So the you you might remember her from a music video, Rosanna Toto. She's the woman in red. And this same year that she was in Staying Alive, she was also in Flashdance. If you want to hear a great episode on Flashdance, go over to our partner podcast, Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. They just did it a few episodes ago. It's a great discussion. Yep. Excellent. <clears throat> the following year, she did Runaway. And a lot of people, I think, would know her, though, from this film, 1987's Dirty Dancing. I think that's where most people discover Cynthia Rhodes. We also get, f- I mean, look, she was part of, she's part of three seminal movie, musical dance features. Absolutely. Like, you, you can't yeah. get any better than that. And, and well, I'll say this, she married Richard Marks. So yeah, they're and divorced, is, but <laughs> has been in, in his videos as well. And she's yeah. in one of what I think is uh, a very underseen 80 sci-fi action film runaway. I love, I, I love that film. So good. She's so actually sorry. really good in it. Yep. Finola Hughes as Laura. Now, this kind of was Finola Hughes' first major film. She had been acting in some stuff before that, but this is sort of um, her credit as the big screen. Before then, she had done films like The Apple in 19... Oh, well, there's another one I need to write down. Yeah, the Apple. Oh, my Apple God. All the time. I know. We need to... Uh, that one, that will really hurt your brain since you like musicals so much. Um, well, I was going to say, and another musical that I also enjoyed was Can't Stop the Music. I always equate oh, yeah. Can't Stop the Music and, and the Apple as sort of the same, but the Apple's another another vision. Yeah, so <laughs> she has these bit parts, but she kind of gets her first starring role with Staying Alive in 1983. Post that, she does a lot of TV shows and TV movies. But again, I think most people know her from her stint on General Hospital. So she was on that show from 1985 to, I think, last year. 
1,348 episodes. And she won an Emmy in 1991 for General Hospital, which is crazy. We get Steve Inwood as Jesse. Now he's the director of Satan's Alley in the film. (laughs) Um, He's in another musical fame, 1980. Uh, Did Prince of the City in 81 and Staying Alive in 83. A recurring character outside of John Travolta, we get Mrs. Monero, played by Julie Bavasso. I think her role, I I know her from Saturday Night Fever in this movie, and then the only other movie that I recognize her from is Moonstruck in 87. Um, yeah. Again, yeah. not a lot of acting credits. <clears throat> this one surprised me. So he shows up right at the beginning during that amazing Frank Stallone song. Um, you get Kurtwood, Kurtwood Smith as the choreographer. <laughs> was that not shocking to see him right at the beginning of this film? Yeah, I was I like red rec- the choreographer. I just <laughs> recently watched RoboCop and I'm like, yeah, that's a weird, I don't know, man. It's weird. Yeah. The RoboCop is in 87. That 70 show as, as a uh, red foreman from 98 to 2006. But yeah, Kurt, Kurtwood Smith is in staying alive in the beginning for like five minutes was through the dance montage. Right. I wish he would have said, I wish he would have tapped a dancer and said, bitches leave. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Here's the one I want to spend a little time on. You've already talked about it, Brad. Frank Stallone is Carl. Okay. Now, Frank Stallone. I don't know if anybody knows this. I, I know a lot of people know about Sylvester Stallone, but let's, let's just talk about Frank Stallone for a second. Three platinum albums, 10 gold albums, five gold singles, Golden Globe nomination for best soundtrack. Guess what movie? Mm. Staying Alive. Grammy nomination for best original song with his single, Far From Over, from the film, Staying Alive. So you'll hear that song throughout this movie over and over again. He has written and recorded compositions for nine films, including Rocky 1, 2, and 3, Rambo 2, Paradise Alley, Over the Top. I think those star his brother, right? Okay, so there you go. Yes, nepotism. (laughs) He has acted, however in over 60 films and TV shows. I mean, we're talking classics like Walker, Texas Ranger, Hudson Hawk, Staying Alive, of course, Fred Claus, Barfly, (laughs) which I remember, I think it was Roger Ebert just wrote this glowing review about Frank Stallone in his performance in Barfly, Um, and Tombstone. He's in Tombstone as well. Mm -hmm. So if you go to IMDb, you can read this extensive Frank Stallone biography, this mini biography, I'm going to read you a section of it. Okay. Oh God. Frank <laughs> is a guitar music mafia and art aficionado. Um, he's one of the best boxing historians and collectors in the world and is an avid collector of guitars, guns, and memorabilia. When he's not writing songs or filming a project, he can be found on a shooting range or at the gym, but he's happiest with a guitar, beautiful women, and a good glass of vino. If you ask why he's never been married, he'll tell you, I guess I just forgot. That, that's his biography. Totally written by Frank Stallone. It is written by <laughs> Frank Stallone, yes. <laughs> um, that sounds like he's trying trying to move out from the shadow of his brother. <laughs> yes, totally not trying to compensate for something. Um, mm. Do you get excited when you see Frank Stallone in film credit? I do, personally. Oh, no. I, absolutely. I think he's a shithead. I think there's an element of you know this movie's going to have that something special and Frank Stallone's in it or TV show. Sorry. Cause Walker, Texas Ranger, of course. <laughs> um, I have to say that far from over song though. It's uh 
far as from 80s over. Memorable, <laughs> as 80s memorable think, songs wait, go, it's great. Dun, 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 do you think dun, dun, Frank Stallone <laughs> wrote the line? Hmm? The, the line from Walker, Texas Ranger? Oh. Walker told me I have AIDS? I don't know if he wrote oh, it. Jesus. I think he wrote the theme song for it. Uh, I don't think he wrote oh, I thought you the dialogue. Okay, sorry. <laughs> no. Sorry. He definitely did the music while oh, they played okay, that, I was, I'm sure. I almost I almost did a 180 on Frank Sloan. <laughs> <laughs> um, so a little bit of production development. You hit on some of this already, Jose. Um, Saturday Night Fever producer and writer Robert Stigwood, Norman Wexler, started planning a sequel soon after the original film came out in 77 because it was a big hit. They came up with the title Staying Alive and Wexler wrote a script. Travolta was open to the idea of a sequel but did not like the pessimism of the original script thinking that his character mm. Tony needed to see more success as a dancer. Stigwood and executive producers from Paramount Pictures spent the next several years trying to convince Travolta to film the script as written, but with no success. The project was considered abandoned, but then in 1981, Stigwood met with Travolta to get Travolta's views on how a sequel should go. Travolta stated he wanted Monero to attempt a dance career on Broadway and end up in a leading role due to his talent. So Wexler wrote another script based on Travolta's ideas. Um, and uh, basically it's kind of what we have in this film, but Tony only remains in the chorus. He doesn't get the lead. Travolta agreed to participate in the film, though he preferred an ending more like the one he had visioned. And he agreed that Wexler's ending was a more realistic outcome, but felt that it would not be sufficiently exciting for audiences. So Travolta was okay with everything, but he wanted a better ending. He didn't want to end up as a chorus, right? So it was then time to find a director. Uh, Travolta, who had just seen the film Rocky Three, I guess, while he was in Hawaii, um, told his agent that he wanted a director who could bring the energy and pacing of that film to staying alive. To Travolta's surprise, Paramount, with the help of then-studio chief Michael Eisner, was able to bring in Stallone himself. Travolta told Stallone about his idea for a happier ending, so Stallone rewrote the script. Stallone also made the Monero character more mature, given that the character was now six years older than in the original film, and made the film's language tamer than that of the first film to ensure the PG rating. So Stallone was going for PG. The Bee Gees initially had more songs developed for Staying Alive, but after creative differences with star John Travolta, the Bee Gees abruptly left the project. Frank Stallone was brought in at the last minute to provide the remainder of the soundtrack, which Travolta approved. So that's how Stallone got in. Mm. Although the film is widely considered a flop, it did well enough financially. And I don't think it's widely considered a flop. So it's got, it's, it's a flop from a critical perspective. Yeah, I don't think studios really care if it's a flop critically, as no, long as it, it makes was a money six maker. times its budget. And, and you mentioned right. this, Jose, it was such a big money maker for Paramount um, that they wanted Stallone and Travolta to star together in the Godfather part three as their next project. So this thing, money's rolling in and they go, guys, you got to do Godfather part three. The story reportedly would have had Stallone and Travolta as rival mob leaders caught up in a drug trade war. The idea was eventually canceled when Francis Ford Coppola and Mario Puzo and Al Pacino decided to return for the third installment. We could have had, I mean, we, I don't, the best Godfather think- movie. I think Godfather three gets shit on rightfully so in some cases and, and not in others, but boy, that would have been, that would have been <clears throat> weird. 
for that. Can we have a Godfather spinoff movie? Yeah. Well, I was going to say, <laughs> if there is a parallel universe, this movie exists and I want to see it. So, um, well, they might be the right age right now to get it going. <laughs> that's true. Hey, let's talk about awards. This thing was nominated mm. for some awards. We already talked about the Grammys, right? For Razzies. Um, let's talk about Razzies. So the fourth ah. Golden Raspberry Awards, John Travolta was nominated for worst actor for this film and two of a kind. He lost, however, that year to Christopher Atkins, who starred in A Night in Heaven. Fanola oh. Hughes was nominated as Worst Supporting Actress. She lost to Sybil Danning, who was nominated for Chained Heat and Hercules. Oh, oh, Hercules. oh that's unfair. God, we got to do Hercules. I got to circle that one, too. God damn it. Um, we got to do both those <laughs> Hercules films. Um, we only get 12, Troy. We only get 12. We might have to do more. Uh, Fanola Hughes uh, was nominated for Worst New Star, but she lost to Lou Ferrigno in Hercules. So there you go. They didn't take home any. I can razzies. see that. Yeah. I can see that. Can you really? I don't think so. <laughs> um, wow. That's a lot of information. We've already spent probably an hour, 15 hour, 20 minutes. Oh, time cool. guy. Oh boy. I think so yeah. Oh, time guy. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <clears throat> and my apologies. I, I guess I party too hard at new year's Eve because my voice is slowly going away, but we're going to get through this. I'm going to take a quick break. I'm going to get some hot tea. When we're back, we're going to dive into our thoughts and watch Brad have a mental breakdown when we talk about uh, staying alive. So um, sit tight. We'll be back. In the mood for hot coffee? When you are, nothing else will satisfy. Coffee has a flavor, an aroma, a deep down satisfying goodness all its own. And our coffee has something extra, the care with which we brew and serve it. You'll enjoy the show more while you're enjoying steaming hot coffee. Come and get yours now. What'd you say your name was? Billy. Billy Holiday, that's my name. Diana Ross is Billy Holiday. My man don't love me. Treats me all so me. Diana Ross is Billy Holiday in her first motion picture, Lady Sings the Blues. Well, this is one face that won't get that hungry. I don't stand in no line for nobody. Who does she think she is? A lady with a hell of a voice. Someday you'll come along. affect my whole life, baby. I love you. If you go down, baby, I'd I go down, too. I'm not going down. Because there ain't no place down there I want to be. Lady Sings the Blues, starring Diana Ross and Billy D. Williams. From Paramount Pictures, in color, rated R, under 17, not admitted, without parent. Their eyes. back let's jump right into this jose i i'm gonna guess you were like me uh staying alive is one of those films that you just remember from your childhood but you don't remember that much about it or maybe you did i didn't uh, full disclosure i hated this movie when i first saw it <laughs> saw it in the theater but there was a group of movies that i just absolutely um that my my dad loved and we would always fight like he loved rhinestone loved rhinestone that was one of his oh. favorite movies of all time 
And over the years, I've watched it so many times that I've come to love Rhinestone for just, it's so bad it's good, but there's just, there's some charm about Rhinestone that I think is infectious. And it is one of the perfect um, group films to watch, in my opinion. It's just fun. So I walked into this going, staying alive. I never liked this film. Maybe it's going to be the next rhinestone for me. Like, I'm going to finally appreciate what my dad saw in this. I don't know if you had that kind of history with this thing, but I'm really curious what um, what you thought of staying alive when you first saw it and then what you think of it now. So my history with it is that Obviously, that year Flashdance had come out, and I remember I had recorded both of these films on one VHS tape, and I used to just watch them repeatedly, oh. um, and remember and try to memorize like the choreography. Um, so the audition dance, I would do that when it would come up, and some of the dance at the end. Uh, so that that's what I remember of it. Um, I have not seen it since, you know those those days watching it on HBO and then watching it on my tape, um, my VHS. The other day I told Scott Scooter to, I'm like, point the remote at the VCR. And he was like, what? <laughs> and I'm like, you know what I mean? The player. Um, anyway, so when I rewatched this, oh man, was this just a slog to get through. At 93 minutes, it was, ugh, it was, it was, was bad. I mean, I listen, I can see what they were going for. Um, what this movie reminds me a lot of is uh, Bob Fosse's all that jazz. Um, uh, right yeah. down to yeah. right down to even the beginning with the whole audition while the music's going and the credits are going. There's even a character who yells out so-and-so lay back, lay back. Cause there's this protracted scene where uh, Scheider is saying that to a dancer. Um, and then obviously it, it it hinges on this like final production that the audience sees. So I think that all that jazz was sort of the template for this. And when I said I was a fan of modern movie musicals like Xanadu and, you know, Footloose, arguably Purple Rain, Streets of Fire, I think even qualifies as, oh, a, as a modern movie musical. And it's a great um, movie, by the way, too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think it's un American not to like Streets of Fire. I think so, too. That's right up there with Top Gun. <laughs> I'm getting I'm the sitting, evil eye I'm from sitting Brad. right here. Oh, sorry, I sorry. Go I know. Um, even this movie kind of fails to me as a as a modern movie musical, and the reason why it fails is one, the songs are being used as a way to emotionally bolster scenes, but the songs and the lyrics, the way that they do it, is so first grade. It's awful. Um, so when he goes to that, that party with her or whatever, and he's thinking he's in the white suit, which is a callback to yeah. you know, Saturday night fever. Um, you know, the song is called moody girl and, and the lyrics are something like moody girl come into my world and fill up my lonely world. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's awful. And then even at one point she's singing her emotions about being Cynthia Rhodes is singing her emotions about being treated badly, you know? Um, so I didn't like that particular aspect of it. Um, and we don't get a lot of dance scenes. We get a lot of heavily edited, like cut rehearsal scenes. There is one really great scene between Cynthia Rhodes and, and John Travolta where they're practicing at night. That's really, really beautiful. And it is sort of reminiscent of the scene 
the more than a woman scene in the first film with him and uh, Karen Gorey, I think her name was, or uh, yeah, Karen Gorey. But unfortunately, there's not a lot of dance sequences until the end. And what you do see is it's very, very jazz in the respect that it's just so repetitive. There's a lot of split leaps and grand jetés and chenet jetés, which Travolta does really, really nicely. But it's just kind of underwhelming, the dancing. You know, when I see dancing on the screen, I either want to see something that I can't do myself or I can't see otherwise, or something that at least is energetic and fun. And the dancing here is just kind of dead. Um, again, I think that has to do with the fact that it's just so repetitive. There's a lot of jumping through the air and, you know, striking your poses and jazz hands and things like that. And it just, it just gets kind of boring, but which surprises me when you listed the credentials for these choreographers, I still don't believe you. But when, when I, when you listed the movies (laughs) that they worked on, I'm like, well, it totally makes sense because those movies are quite terrible as well. And forgettable and forgettable. So it, their product on display. I guess this is not an anomaly. No, they they pretty much produce crap and, and this fits right in there. So not only does it fail as a movie musical, it unfortunately also fails just as a, as a movie. I mean, I feel like it's deficient in every way that a movie unfortunately can be and go off the rails and be terrible. Right. And I think the, the, biggest offender of this is you know i i find it ironic that finola hughes only went on to basically be known for soap opera because that's what you're getting here this really bad soap opera acting with really terrible inane dialogue um like so for example you know carl shows up with with uh jackie and then he's he you know travolta says oh you can go you're in safe she's in safe hands now and Frank Stallone says, what do you, Allstate? And Travolta says, yeah, you want disability? Oh, I love that. I love that exchange. <laughs> I, I wrote that down. Yeah, is everything all right? Everything's fine. She's in good hands. Hey, what are you, Allstate, what pal? Are you, Allstate? Yeah, you want disability? <laughs> yeah, you want disability? Or even just like at the end when he's like, look, I know you know that I know what I want you to know, but I need you to know I couldn't have done this without you. Like, it's like, it's that. Like, that that level of dialogue is terrible the, the other not one only I, that oh the, the other exchange i like is uh you hear the way she talks she's so intelligent like like i love it an accent doesn't make someone intelligent tony if it did you'd be einstein yeah. i know that's a great read that's Absolute great read. that's your dialogue folks <laughs> yeah it's it's awful but not only is every character a walking contradiction in the respect that they'll do something scratch his eyeballs out um go to bed with with Tony Monero, but then in the next second, they're saying something like, get away from me, you're a creep, or I'm sorry for what I was doing. Um, and I think that's the, the worst offense of this screenplay is that there is no real arc for Tony Monero. He has, it's supposed to be five years after the events of the first film. He has not changed at all. He makes excuses. He has all these like charming one-liners, but he sounds like an idiot. There's all this double speak. I feel like he's one of those people that goads other people into getting them to say what he wants to hear. And that's it. Um, he, he, there's no arc for him. He's completely selfish. No, he, he, gets his- he tells his mom he might've been, 
What do you say? Aggressive? I, uh, I, well, he said, he said something like, are you telling me that, you know, I was just unpleasant to be around, but that's okay. Or something like that. And yeah. that does not No, I'm sorry. There, he has not made any arrogance. The last something movie. like that. Yeah. He, yeah. He continues to use Jackie the same way that he used, um, you know, uh, the, I'm forgetting her name now, Donna Pascal, that character hang leaving her hanging on. And it's just, some of this is just so weird and confusing. He hops out of bed from Finola Hughes after they spent a night together. And it's the first thing he does is he calls Jackie and he's like, Hey, are you alone? Is there a vacancy? You know, I just wanted to call you. I'll probably be drowned by the rain tonight. See you tomorrow. And it's like, what are you doing? You just slept with somebody. Uh, and then pretty, you he wanted Jackie. he wanted to brag about it to somebody. That's the only person he could brag, brag about it to. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, I just, he does incredibly illogical and awful things. Well, didn't we just see this though? Like the exact same thing yeah. happened on Saturday night. And, and, and so unfortunately, and then and then he goes rogue and does a dance solo in a Broadway number. You would be fired if you did that. Absolutely straight out fired. But what if you're really um, and, good, Jose? What if you're so good? Like you just, you did like the dance fight of your life against Satan and, <laughs> and everybody's like, oh my God, and he got a standing ovation. Would he still be fired? Yes, he would still be fired. There's no way that director keeps him around. I don't know. And, and I got to tell you, even though there's no transformation for him, he mistreats both of the women. Um, although I think a plus is this might be somewhat feminist because the women in some ways have their own ideas and they are independent and they can be just as aggressive as the men. Um, but unfortunately they all still need Tony to sort of like complete them, which maybe not so feminist, but doesn't the movie doesn't pass the Bechdel test. <laughs> <laughs> not quite. Um, but then the movie ends on this ridiculous note where he says, you know what I want to do? And he's like, I I want to strut. And then it, it ends as almost like a bookend piece, like the beginning of Saturday night fever. And then the ending of this one, but it's so cringy. And the other thing that's cringy and eye rolling, you mean brilliant? No, it's not, not brilliant brilliant. in any sort of way. BG songs come on and and he, they're ending, they're ending this movie, how it started. Right. It's amazing in the first one. It's like there was no character arc the whole time. None. (laughs) Terrible decisions. It might as well as not have been five years later. And then two, two other things. One, the costumes in this Satan's Alley musical, they were done by Bob Mackie, but I mean, uh, Bob into S&M. There's S&M influence. There's whips and there's just like bleeding boobies. I I don't know what they were going for. It was bizarre. Broadway's weird. Yeah. Yeah. And then just, the end of the movie is just, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's, it's awful. This is probably one of the worst sequels and one of the worst movie musicals out there. Oh yes. The other thing I was going to say is there's a lot of slow-mo dancing in this and it just comes off as really cringe and really embarrassing actually. And the faces they're making, I I don't know if the directors told them, hey, some of this might be in slow motion. You might not want to be making a constipated face or a, you know, violent, bloodthirsty face that Fanola Hughes makes constantly when she's dancing. Um, She's got to make that jump, man. You cannot make that jump without that face. And the editing for the dancing. Terrible. Absolutely terrible. Mm. Um, I, I will say I will concur with Brad that Travolta's body 
fantastic. I mean, when he comes out dressed like a Chippendales slash Yor from the future character and he's dancing around. Yor was the same body. year. Red Brown was also nominated for worst actor and he didn't win. Yes. And I think he had to cut 20 pounds. They pretty much Stallone put uh, Stallone um, put Travolta on the Rocky three regimen and he shed 20 to get just cut. Yeah. So, I mean, he's cut. He's got a great body in this. Yes, he does. Yep. But it's a, it's a full on mess. Absolutely terrible. Okay. It, it deserves worse. It's worse sequel numbering. Whatever the number was on that list that you saw, I hope it was number one. Because oh, it was, was number one. It, it was yeah, voted exactly. the worst sequel ever. I, th- I think it was Entertainment Weekly. I have to go back and look. I, I don't remember. But okay, Brad, I I just <laughs> want to know how much you enjoyed this thing. If the goal um, in 2023 is to break Brad, I think I'm I think I'm coming out swinging on this one. You um, are coming out swinging. <laughs> <laughs> this might surprise you. I think Jose might hate this movie more than me. What? Yeah. What? <laughs> I, I don't like it, but I didn't hate it as much as Jose. Huh. Now, like my first note is fails as a musical, fails as a movie. So Jose <laughs> has already said that. But I, the 93 minutes kind of went pretty quickly. Um, I thought it was pretty much a cut and paste of the first film because like his relationship with women is the exact same. He's got one that he wants another. He's kind of like tagging, like pulling along. So it's kind of the same movie and you know, exactly like as soon as you it's Sylvester Stallone is the director, you know exactly how this movie plays out. It's, it's a sports movie from here on out. It plays just like a sports movie. You know, something happens. He gets onto the team. Um, Something happens to say the captain, he becomes the captain and then they win the championship at the end, essentially. And that's kind of how it, it works. Um, there's nothing really overly exciting about the film. Um, none of the performances are very good outside of say Travolta's body. God, he is Jose. <laughs> I know I joke sometimes that I'm like a quarter gay. <laughs> this time I was like, I don't know. It, the uh, the quarter is becoming quite large because boy he is sexy AF in this movie. Um, yeah, he, but, he he rocks that black jacket and scarf. I got to tell you. Oh, oh yeah, god, yeah. I mean he certainly does. I, I I just I don't like the music. None of the music is any good at all. And, and Jose kind of said it like it's trying to kind of give characters like characteristics and and, and characterize them like moody girl. And you're like, Oh, this is like way on the nose. And then it literally follows it with the girl singing about how sad and lonely she is. And I'm just, I, are we really doing this? We're, we're using the musical (laughs) numbers to basically build narrative and build characters. Okay. Normally we do that in the plot, but uh, okay. And so it's just poorly written. Um, The redemption arc with the mom isn't great because I, I don't know. Like the mom is kind of a shithead and, and so is he like, they're two terrible people that somewhat kind of redeem each other, or like come to a sort of an apologetic sort of climax, but I don't know. It really didn't feel great. I just, I don't know because I watched this less than 24 hours after Saturday night fever. This just feels so neutered. And so 
like nothing. Like it's just, it's got no balls at all. Like there's just no balls to this film. It's so like, I, I don't know. I, it just, I was shocked that it, it just felt totally different. And when you're going to make a sequel, it's usually like bigger and better and, you know, bigger, grandier all. And this one just felt smaller um, the stakes were way, I, I know he's on Broadway now, but like, you never really feel Broadway. Like I never felt the, the, like I made it onto Broadway. So do it, you think like, I, I have a, I have a question. Like it still felt like he was dancing at the 2001 Odyssey. Like <laughs> it, it, it didn't feel any bigger than that. Is this a sequel? <laughs> and, and let me make sure I ask this correctly. Cause I, I'm still trying to articulate it, but when, when you talk about a bigger, grander scale and it sort of ups the ante for everything, if you had only watched the PG version and let's say take out the the overt sex stuff and maybe even a little bit of the nihilism, the, the slur, that stuff, right? If, if this were, if the only thing that existed was Saturday Night Live PG, not the R-rated or, you know, the, the unrated version, does this stand up as a better sequel if that R-rated version never existed? Well, I've never, I, 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 I didn't, I haven't seen that one. Well, think, I, think I, of, think of Saturday night fever without, um, with, without the over any edge. <laughs> yeah. Without any edge more or less. Uh, I mean, maybe it fits a little bit closer to it, but do you think I mean, that's what they were going for is they, they looked at the PG and R rated version and said, if we're going to make a sequel to a film, we're going to make a sequel to this PG version and not the R version. Because I, I even I, I wonder how much Travolta and some of them actually understood what they had, and so when a studio comes down to it, because I, I think Travolta turned down a lot of money before eventually coming to this, and then when Stallone comes to it, and then Frank Stallone comes to it, because the BG the BGs left over create. How do the fucking BGs leave over creative differences with John Travolta? That always, if that's true, that blows my mind. But that also basically means that there are a bunch of people who didn't understand um, the R rated version, or they intentionally said, we're not doing a sequel to the R rated version. We're going to do a sequel to this PG version. I mean, that that's a, a very good observation. Cause I didn't really think of that. Cause I've never really seen the PG cut. Um, so no, you're probably right. Like if you think about it, if Saturday night fever is, like a PG film in the theater, does it do even better? Like, I, I, I don't know. know. It does. It's, it's hard to say. Better, but I, I I look at it this way. Like in this film, um, the Tony Monero character is just a jerk to women. Um, there's no date rape. There's nothing. Like, he's just an ass, right? But he's also like a G shucks kind of guy as well. Like, yeah, and, that, and that's like not. Who but if he, you, but like, if you think he's uh, supposed to be like five years older, and he's still kind of the same guy. It is emotionally stunted. Yeah. But, and again, I didn't watch the PG version, but I'm trying to think back on my childhood. I don't remember any of that dark stuff when you're watching the day HBO day version of Saturday night fever. Um, but you'd still, he, he still was kind of an ass. Yeah. So I'm just, I'm just wondering if they just said, okay, we're, we're making a sequel to that PG version. And that that's why we have staying alive. It seems intentional to me. Probably so. But I think the worst thing I could have done to stay alive is watch Saturday night fever in such close, close proximity because it, it really doesn't hold up. Even though I don't really love Saturday night fever, 
it's like a thousand times better than this one. But with that being said, I didn't like, wasn't like repulsed by it. Um, I kind of, maybe because theory, like the dances, I kind of faded off a little bit and didn't pay much attention. And then <laughs> they started talking again and I was like, Oh, they did this in the last film. And then it was over. Um, like the third, act, the completely third act of this movie is like the whole routine. And that's a, ballsy thing to do like 20 25 minutes is like dancing at the end and you're like this i mean say what you will like rocky four like the last 25 minutes is the boxing match with ivan drago isn't this just a isn't this a rocky film i mean this is is. this is rocky three this rocky yeah rocky three rocky four like it's basically follows the same beats um but like that I don't know. The boxing is dramatic and exciting and the dancing in this, like I, I can't tell you what's good or bad dancing, but I can tell you what's exciting. And the, the end of this movie is not exciting. Um, yeah, but strangely, I like, wouldn't say this is like the worst film I've ever seen. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. So Jose, Jose definitely hated it worse than I did. I, I kind of find it, like un- like forgettable and like I will never watch it again, but I didn't want to like throw up while I was watching it. I, I have a question. You've, you've always come up with uh, some very unique descriptions of music. Oh, fart musical. Is this a fart musical? <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. This is a hundred. I wrote that down. Fart musical. Okay. <laughs> I was wondering what you were going to come to the table with on this one. Yeah. So it, it, is it fart rock um, or is it fart, fart rock. yacht rock or? It doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't have the edge of fart rock. No, but it's it not yacht rock. It I wish it was fart rock. Um, yeah, see, I, I think it's got something special. Like it's a new category. I don't know what you would call it. It's. It's not that you know that fart rock that I love that you detest, but it's it's got this yacht rock quality. Frank Stallone and the Bee Gees is a deadly combination. It is, and oh and they've created this new subgenre of film. It's it's not exactly yacht rock, but it's it's this place that sits in between um, Nickelback and and maybe yacht rock. So whatever that space is between Nickelback and yacht rock, I think Frank Stallone and the Bee Gees have That's created. That's Satan's Alley. It's sure. music hell. Yes, it's yeah. Satan's Alley. Okay, indeed. And by the way, I watched I watched this the first time in close proximity to Saturday Night Fever. So I waited a day and I watched it again just to make sure that. Wait, you watched this twice? I watched it. Oh, I'm sorry. It's 33. It's 93 minutes. I mean, it's not, you know, it doesn't take a lot of time. But yeah, that that second time it was like, it just confirmed everything. (laughs) That's one and a half episodes of Game Game of Thrones you could have been watching. I know. (laughs) Yeah, but Game of Thrones doesn't have Frank Stallone. So, and it doesn't have this music. Yeah, this music that fits between Nickelback and Yacht Rock. Um, wow. You kind of surprised me, Brad. I, I thought, we I mean, would... I, I hate it. Like it's a terrible movie. I just don't hate it. <laughs> is is it the worst sequel you've ever seen? Uh, wow. Ooh, that's a tough one, huh? <sighs> I mean, are we counting things like troll Two? like, eh, probably, probably. Yeah, probably. Yeah. It is the worst. Yeah, sequel. I, I think yeah. so too. I can't think of it. Like airplane two isn't great. Ooh, yeah. That one's bad. Is it, is it worse than Grease two? No. Okay. I love Grease 2. <laughs> okay, so it is the worst sequel. I think so, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, wow, you guys covered a lot. Um, where do I start? <laughs> um, okay, so first of all, clearly, everybody involved in this film, 
I, I don't want to say they didn't understand the first movie. The assignment. Yep. They well, I think they got a different assignment. I think the studio came back and said, We sold a lot of albums. We got Grover to get into the to the suit. Um, we got a lot of parodies. Kids are listening to Saturday Night Fever. Kids love the Bee Gees in in eighty three. So let's make a sequel to the PG version of Saturday Night Fever. I think that was it's not that they didn't understand the first film. I think Stallone, Travolta, all those involved just came to the table and said, well, I'll say specifically Stallone and Travolta said, we're going to do a sequel to the PG version. Um, I think you got to keep that like in context. <clears throat> and I also think Travolta wanted to make the Rocky three of dance films. And that's exactly what they ended up making because they hired the director and star of Rocky three. So when you do that, you're Brad, your analogy is perfect. This is a sports film. Um, instead of boxing montages that kind of accumulate into this 20 minute fight sequence at the end, you get dancing montages with this music that's undefined yet, the Nickelback slash Yacht Rock. Um, and it accumulates into a final dance fight on stage with jazz hands. Um, but the, the problem with it is Rocky is a more sympathetic character than Tony Monero. You're not rooting for Tony in this film at all, simply because of, in my opinion, how he treats Jackie. I think the best acting is not uh, Travolta's body. It's Cynthia Rhodes. She shines in this thing, in my opinion. I think she's the only one that's acting, as a matter of fact. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but I think she's really good in this film. Um, to the point where it does a really good job of showing all of her talents and skills, even from her singing, um, to her being angry, to her jealousy, to her being happy. It's, she's like a really believable character, which surprised me. I, I don't know. I, you guys may disagree, but I've always been kind of a Cynthia, um, Cynthia Rhodes fan and out of her films outside of runaway, I think you've got runaway flash dance and staying alive take those dirty dancing. She's fantastic in all of them. And I think she's the highlight of this film. So, um, I mean, that's <clears throat> a subtle compliment. Yeah, sure. I, okay. Cinematography isn't good. Um, this is shot like a Rocky film, um, uh, mixed with eighties music video sensibilities that may have worked in 83, but it clearly doesn't hold up, especially when you're talking about the dance sequences. And you talked about this Jose a little bit, if you remember the first film, the camera follows Travolta and, it, and you, you just glide with him and it feels very kinetic and you see everything. You see the whole Tra Travolta's whole body moving, right? This one, you get segments of Travolta's body and the way it's edited, you don't see him fully doing what he should be doing. And when you do see it, it's a flash and then it's on to the next cut. So I think that's the biggest problem. It's too many quick cuts. Like the editing itself is the Achilles heel of this film. It doesn't help. Travolta doesn't make a good Broadway dancer. I think he makes a great disco dancer. I don't think he's a good Broadway dancer. And I think, you know, you're in trouble when the director and editor doesn't trust the actor, or the dancers and decides to kind of hide the inadequacy of their talent with all these quick edits. I think, I think that hurts it. Um, Do you think it was pur purposeful to kind of cover up his I think so. Of, <clears throat> it's it either comes from the choreography, Travolta. It, there's a lack of talent on display here that I think when you look at the dailies, if you're in the back, 
in trying to put this movie together and you go, okay, we have this, this steady cam shot or you have this long shot and they, they, if they tried to replicate anything like they did in Saturday night fever, I guarantee you they looked at that and went, Ooh, this doesn't look good. It's not exciting. Um, they're not good. The choreography's not good. Um, so the cinematography may have been fine and the shot composition may have been fine, but the, I, I guarantee that editing had to be a conscientious choice to kind of go, this looks terrible. So let's try and spruce it up with quick edits. That that's the only thing I can figure out because the editing is terrible in this thing. This might be the worst edited film I've ever seen. If, yeah. if I were to pick a candidate, um, the, the final dance number for St. Dally, it, it is one big S and M dance sequence that leads to like a goofy dance solo. It's probably the goofiest dance solo in all of film musical history. And that dramatic jump is not dramatic at all. You just, it, uh, Finola Hughes just looks like she's just constipated when she makes that jump. I, that you were talking about the slow motion face thing, dude, you nailed it. I mean, I don't, I don't know what they told her to do. It's not working. Um, she deserved to win worst supporting actress, not Lou Ferrigno. I would have much preferred Lou Ferrigno in her role in this film. <laughs> I think it would have been more interesting. Um, <laughs> I'd buy that for a dollar. I, I definitely would go and see this. Um, I, I don't know. I, I'm kind of with Brad. Here's my thing. I've always hated this film and I've always stayed away from it, but I wanted to revisit it and see if it would have some of that magic. And I got to tell you, <clears throat> I did have fun watching it because the Frank Stallone BG's comedy, this movie is just one. It's probably like eight or nine music videos with about three or four minutes of bad dialogue between those music videos until you get to this 15, 20 minute dance fight. That is just like this terrible eighties glam, uh, whatever music we're going to call that the Nickelback yacht rock, um, combination. And it's, it's terrible, but I've come to appreciate it a little bit more. So, I think it is the worst sequel ever made. And I actually think that's a compliment. Um, yeah. I think this movie is so terrible and bad that it's kind of fun. Um, the only thing that really bothers me though, is that Tony Monero character that's in this film. I think you nailed it, Brad. He, he hasn't grown up from the first film and um, you just can't root for him at all. I'm rooting for uh Jackie. Like I want Jackie to come out on top of all of this crap. And I think she does. And here's my thing. If I take a step back and go, this is a Cynthia Rhodes, Frank Stallone movie. And I concentrate on those two for what Frank Stallone does with the music. Um, and then what Cynthia Rhodes does from the acting, I actually really enjoy this film. If, if I just, and I'm saying Cynthia Rhodes for quality and Frank Stallone for that's so terrible. It's actually hilarious. So those two components outweigh the Tony Monero character, which I think is just absolutely deplorable in this film. Yeah. But I, I didn't, I didn't hate it. Um, <laughs> I, did, I didn't hate it at would all. Would you watch it again? Yeah, I, I would. I, I actually would like to watch it again with like you guys or a group of people well, that, yeah. and then just take okay. it apart. See, to me, it's, it, it did, it did do exactly what rhinestone had done which is, okay, I can appreciate this film for what it is. It's this time capsule of really bad 80s films. 
And, you know, I find it interesting too. I think America from a Hollywood perspective didn't know what to do with the musical in the eighties. That's why we got flash dance. I mean, they couldn't do a traditional musical. So you get stuff like streets of fire or this thing. Right. Um, and that's an interesting combination of they don't have the talent in front of the screen or behind the screen to make a good musical. They obviously don't have the talent from a music perspective outside of the Bee Gees, but they bailed. Um, and I don't care what you say, Brad, Jive Talkin's like one of the greatest pop songs ever. Um, Bee Gees are cool. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> so I, I don't know. I, it's such a, this movie is such an interesting car wreck that I would definitely watch it again. I, there is a 4k of this sucker coming out in 2023. Oh God, yes. I am so excited for it because I hope it has commentary. <laughs> I, I will buy this thing day one. Um, because, uh, I want to hear Frank Stallone out of Dolby Atmos. I want to hear that magnificent voice come through, um, with that Nickelback yacht rock sound. Uh, <laughs> I, I want to see Satan's alley in 4k and just, watch my eyeballs. I, I have this reaction to this film now that I kind of do with cats. Cats is terrible, but it's so much you know. fun to watch. Um, <laughs> and, and I find this one to kind of fall into that. Same. Now the question for me is, do I like, you know, what's worse, this or Greece two? I think this is worse than Greece two, but whereas Greece two, isn't really a lot of fun for me to watch because I hate the music in Greece two. I really no. hate the music. I, that whole rape in the bunker. I mean, just go back and listen to that episode. Um, let's do it for our country. No, thanks. Um, yeah, the cool rider is a great song. Yeah. I, Michelle Pfeiffer. Come on. Yeah. Okay. But I, I think it's yeah. funny that Travolta, two of Travolta's biggest hits and possibly two of the most iconic movies of the seventies ended up with two of the worst sequels ever made. Um, yeah. That, that's interesting to me, but I don't know. I, I kind of had fun watching this again. So sorry, sorry, dad, you were right. Uh, I was wrong. <laughs> Staying alive is a good film, but not in the context of you thinking it's good. It's so bad. It's good for me. I, I would, I would put it in that context. You know, you might be onto something with the editing too, because you know, unlike Flashdance or Footloose where Kevin Bacon and Jennifer Beals were doubled in certain dance sequences, Travolta is doing it all. And so yeah. I think there was, kind of a dumbing down of certain moves. It's not I exciting. I mean, his most, yeah, it's not exciting. I mean, his most, his most intricate move is the, uh, Chine jetés that he does, which are actually pretty impressive. It's not an easy turn and, and jump to do. Um, and clearly they knew that because he does a ton of them at the end. I, I equate <laughs> this to the best, the best analogy I can think of is, um, from a musical perspective, you go watch singing in the rain. Okay the greatest musical in my opinion ever made from a Kung Fu perspective, go watch drunken master Two, Jackie Chan's drunken master. 2. Those are my two favorite movies of all time. That is the top Kung Fu film. That is the top musical. If you want the so bad, it's good on the musical side, watch staying alive. If you want, it's so bad. It's good. Then watch any Billy blanks, um, King of kickbox or something like that. Staying alive is the king of uh, kickboxers. I mean, it, it is that <laughs> F class. It wants to be a musical. It wants, it's trying so hard to impress you and dazzle you. Um, but it just, it, it can't do it. It's, it, it is a direct to video Don, the Dra dragon Wilson movie. Um, that that's its brother on the other side of the house. So 
Yes, Staying Alive is the Don the Dragon Wilson of dance films and musicals. <laughs> nice. And, like, <laughs> and I mean I that as a compliment. Note, when I was taking notes for this film, I didn't have a whole lot because like there's a scene and then there's like this long, overlong musical number. Yeah. And then they kind of move the plot along a little bit. But again, it's just a sports movie wrapped around a musical that's got terrible music and it's just i don't know it, it it's it's so terrible i mean and tony is like a shithead god he sucks yeah he is. but i i would if i if i ran across this album uh i'd buy it just just to hear it but i i bought burt reynolds only vinyl album it's it, <laughs> burt should he, he was right to stay in acting and not to go to music um <laughs> But I, I would I would listen to the Staying Alive album just in the most ironic, fun way that I would on my greatest Yacht Rocks uh, vinyl album that I have. Um, just not that obnoxious. I, I think we're talking about the same thing. It, that obnoxious music where it's like, Ooh, dance, Ooh, fire, Ooh, desire. No, no, no. I'm, like, I'm I'm talking about like the the main the Frank Stallone stuff. Oh, the yes, Frank yes, Stallone yes, music indeed. is fantastic. I mean, far from over you hear that song like three or four times in this film. And then after the movie's over, you're like far from over. Yeah. You're just, I mean, you're strutting to far from over, not the Bee Gees. That's how good that Frank Stallone song is. Right. Yeah, I do, it got, I do it like got that the number five, the I think on the charts, that's how good it is. But uh, yeah, I, oh, I, I thought I was going to really hate that. Cause I've never enjoyed watching it, but maybe, maybe just finally getting into that, that mature age group. I can, I can finally appreciate <laughs> staying alive. <laughs> Yeah, you're a man by, now. I'm a man now. By the way, did you notice um, in the first uh, scene with uh, Frank Stallone's band, Richie Sambora is playing guitar on the far left of the stage? Oh, that's oh. a good point. There's a couple of interesting. So um, Stallone makes a cameo. He gets bumped in the street. Yeah. Yes, he gets bumped in the beginning. Uh, Joyce yeah. Heiser is one of the things that's hanging around the bar. Yeah. Um, Joyce Heiser, as you know, was in uh, just just one of the guys, which is one of my favorite movies, which I don't think you can make again today. Unfortunately, you, you get a oh, reference yeah? to Rocky where it's like, yo, Adrian, five minutes yes, or something like it's that. Showtime. It's yeah. showtime. Yeah. Uh, <sighs> it's a lot of a lot of quirky stuff about this, but I'm, I'm kind of so out of the three of us. I, I think I would champion this the most than Brad than Jose, which is weird to me. I thought, yeah. I really thought going into this, I would be like, man, I'm going to tear this thing up because I've never enjoyed what I remember seeing it in the theater. And I'm like, when is this over? Yeah. Um, but <laughs> And every time I had to watch it with him, we would just have this debate. He never liked Super Inframan. He thought that was the worst movie we'd ever gone to. And I'm like, nope, that's that's staying alive in Rhinestone. Um, <laughs> both have Sylvester Stallone in it. But now I'm thinking those two movies are, 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 are 80s classics, quite honestly. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I do Brad. <laughs> well, what other notes do you guys have? Got nothing. All right. That's that's about it. All right, Jose, I'm gonna ask you the the question we always ask everybody after talking about a film. We just got done having a lively discussion about 1983 staying alive. Is it a bomb? So Troy, you mentioned that it's so bad it's enjoyable. I just think it's so bad. So it is a bomb, unfortunately. Okay. All right. Brad, where are you going to land on this one? Is uh, staying it's a alive? Bomb. It's a bomb. Yep. Uh, I'm going to champion staying alive and say it's not a bomb. Um, from a from a fun watch it with that 80s filter perspective, it's a terrible film. I, I'm I agree with all of your comments, 
but I think it's that terribleness that elevates it to something that um, I can enjoy. But again, I'm also the guy that I get excited anytime Vinegar Syndrome puts out a Don the Dragon Wilson uh, Blu-ray out. And I'll, I'll plot yes, 50 bucks down for different. that. So. <laughs> you know, you say that, but look, if you like bad martial arts films, you got to like bad musicals too. I pre-ordered Sidekicks, okay? So. Yeah, okay, so there yeah. you go. Yeah, you love Sidekicks, and I'm going to pre-order Staying Alive in 4K. Cause I'm, I'm dying for a commentary. Like Kick I, his ass. I, I want to see him strut in 4k. Oh, so excited. Um, Hey, we got a little feedback, Brad. Oh, we do. Okay. We do? Yeah. So <clears throat> my voice is almost done. All right. Mm-hmm. So this comes from Mia. Just listen to Emily, the criminal. One thing I witnessed was the rush of adrenaline. She experienced as she committed each crime. Yeah. She was scared, but afterward the rush created a runaway from reality feeling. Um, think about the fact that here is this young girl trudging through life and not making ends meet. She's dead inside and art didn't fulfill her like it once did. The first time she makes money, she keeps checking her phone, waiting for the call. It made her feel alive. That's why I agree with John and Brad that at the end, she wasn't fulfilled with sitting on the beach and goes back to credit card fraud and made her feel alive. My two cents. Love the show. Mia. There you go. right. Nice. Mia's a smart woman. I, I love yeah. that uh, we're still getting emails a few weeks after Emily the Criminal. I'm, I'm glad more people saw that one. Yeah. And I do want to do a quick shout out. Uh, not shout out. Shout out. <laughs> In a few days, the one and only Korean cool John is going to have a birthday. I think it's January Ooh. 6th. Yeah, I won't say the number, <laughs> um, but it's like. 25 30 it's around there okay but um (laughs) i just want to give a big shout out to john he's been a fantastic friend of the show he's been on multiple episodes we always love him uh on the show and um we love everything he's done for us behind the scenes i mean john is one of my best friends and moving out to maryland that when we picked up the family moved out you know to the east coast six years ago uh, meeting people like John, um, man, that, that was just a blessing. Um, it was great to be closer to you, Jose, um, and, and not just have to wait to like a convention or something to, to get together with you and Randy. But on top of the people that we were closer to that we already knew, we picked up a a new family group of friends. Um, and John and his family have, have become really close to our family and, uh, yeah, happy birthday, John, you, you should get totally spoiled on the sixth and everybody should treat you like a king. Cause you deserve it, man. You're amazing. Yeah, no, I, I would echo that. John is, uh, you know, I, I, I met him through you, Troy, and he's been an amazing friend to me and I couldn't ask for anything more. So John, happy birthday, buddy. Absolutely. Happy birthday, Korean Rambo, which I, <laughs> I forgot the nickname and I called him Korean Rambo one day. I think he likes that better. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, Brad, we don't, uh, yes, we don't have any themes going on. So no, what, we're just picking films. We're just picking films. So you get to pick next week. What are we doing? I do. I get to pick. Oh boy. I am. I cannot tell you how excited I am to review an action film from 1991 Ooh. starring the one, the only, the only Brian, the Boz Bosworth Ooh. stone cold. Oh boy. Ah, we're going to watch some stuff blow up. We Rick are. loves Stone Cold. Yes. <laughs> I will not say, but I cannot wait. That's got Lance Hendrickson. This. Oh my goodness. That's gonna be a Dude, fun watch. Lance Hendrickson's name in that movie is Chains. 
William Forsythe's name is Ice. Yeah. Yep. That deserves a watch just for the names. I can't wait for that. It's going to be amazing. Um, Jose, what's coming up on Watch Skip Plus? Well, uh, <laughs> I believe that the two of you will be <gasps> guessing on our next episode when we review the Netflix streaming Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery. Ooh, can't wait. Yes. It's going to yeah. be fun. It's going to be title. fun. That title. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think we're just going to call it Glass Onion. <laughs> yeah, I think Netflix imposed that second part of it. In, they did. And uh, Rian just wanted Glass Onion. Cool. I can't wait to talk about that one. So that, that'll be released shortly after this episode. Um, Brad, if anybody, man, we got a lot of good recommendations just off of Jose's research, <laughs> but if anybody want to, wants to write in and recommend a film and share their thoughts on movies we talked about, Hey, if there are any other defenders of staying alive, we'd love to hear from you as well. Um, how do they reach out to us? Yeah, that's not a bomb pod at gmail.com. You can also head over to not a bomb podcast.com hit the contact us button. Um, you can leave a suggestion or recommendation there or comments. And you can hit us up on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, um, all those social medias. Cool. Uh, check out Watch Get Plus, Gentleman's Guide yeah. to Midnight Cinema. Who else, Brad? Uh, the VHS files. We That episode that we are on is coming up at some point in time. We will let you know when that is available. Um, the Backlook Cinema podcast. Uh, Friends with Cinefits, obviously. And... Uh, Oh, the mixtape podcast. So there yeah. you go. Night Living Podcast. Did you say that one? Yeah, I did not, but you okay. did. So okay, I did. No. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, Jose, I can't wait for you to jump back on. I know, uh, I think you're coming up again here pretty soon. If not, we're going to force you to be on. So. And we'll I think talk so. to you. And we're going to record your podcast in like 22 hours. So. Yeah. Woohoo. It's going to be great. <laughs> it's always a pleasure when you come on. Um, and thank you so much for sharing all of the insights and giving us all those films that I get to torture Brad with. <laughs> Awesome. Um, yeah. Thank I'm, you so much for having me back. It's always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. God, it, we're going to do from Justin to Kelly. You got to be on for that one. Cause I just, uh, yes. we might have to, we might have to video that one just for Brad's reactions. <sighs> I it's gonna be amazing. love that movie. <laughs> uh, let's see what else. I, I think that's it. I don't know if you are listening in the morning, the afternoon or evening, happy new year. Welcome to 2023. This one's going to be an amazing year, man. I'm so excited about all the movies we have picked out. Um, for the next few months there there's some there's some doozies in there so um join us next week go watch stone cold and i know there's blu-rays out it's got to be streaming on a couple places i'm sure that one's easy to find you're gonna love it yeah just find it just find it go watch it and then come back and listen to our discussion on it so we'll catch you next week don't lose your head 